as we get started, just to recap the entire title, this is Operation Reconciliation, Becoming Effective Fishers of Men to Bear Fruit That Remains, Incorporating Productive Strategies of Evangelism into the Daily Life of the Church. So we've finally gotten, after half a semester, to finally like a part of a gospel presentation. So uh, we've talked a lot about there's a time to pray and there's a time to say. We've laid the foundation of why we need to re-examine uh, what the gospel is and how do we do evangelism and the need for evangelism. And, you know, primarily in the West uh, of any denomination or churches, nobody does like a really well job or a really good job of evangelism. No one's like known for their evangelism. The church isn't known for their evangelism is in the West is what I'm trying to say. Uh, now you go to, uh, you know, other less developed countries, less privileged uh less influenced by the West than, you know, most of the times that they have a little bit more strategic ways to evangelize in lifestyle and in proclamation. So, you know, we as a group probably do a pretty good job with lifestyle evangelism and, you know, a lot of churches are geared more towards lifestyle of let people see what we're doing, welcome them into the church, help them with their marriages, help them with programs and bring people in uh, either to that specific church or to, to Christ through that. Right, but that's not necessarily that's a good strategy and that's necessary, right? But what we've been looking at is the necessity for also proclamation evangelism going out into the cities that are untapped, unreached, uh, people who have never heard the gospel uh, to preach and proclaim the lordship of Christ and submission to Him, life with Him, new life in Him, and all that, right? So uh, that's what we've been preparing preparing for. We've been studying the model and pattern that Christ and the apostles set forth uh, of Christ calling them and discipling them and training them, equipping them, sending them out, and you know the continual process of you know going out into new land, uh, preaching the gospel, converting the believers, building churches, uh, and then sending them back out. Right. So. Uh, you know, we talked about, you know, incorporating prayer into the daily life for that, but so now we're going to get to, uh, the gospel, <laughs> uh, which is essentially the good news, right? So what we're going to do just to outline the next, I'm going to work really hard to, well, what we're going to do anyways is just keep this to three weeks, including this week. So this is week one. Now two more weeks after this. Uh, of Tuesdays being the teachings, and then Thursdays will be the practical workshops, practical nuts and bolts, and what do we do when we're actually out there? How do we, if we encounter a Muslim, what, which way should we gear it? Uh, or an atheist, or if someone says this, what do we, how do we respond? Uh, what do we do when we knock on the door and they answer? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, which that will be lesson one on Thursday. Uh, uh, or Daniel will... a little late for Wednesday. Yeah, or Daniel will give you... a crash course tomorrow night. Yeah, Daniel will give you a crash course if you're going out in one of the teams tomorrow night. So, um, so the way I'm going to outline, or we're going to outline the teaching is today is going to be... If you look, actually look up in the back of this two-page outline, uh, we're down on... Page four. That's page four, uh, lesson number six, the gospel A, the bad news. 
So this is actually usually two teachings, so we're going to combine that into two tonight. We're going to talk about the bad news tonight. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about what is number seven on the paper, the gospel B, the good news. Uh, who is Christ? What has he done for us? Why do I need to exchange my life? What should I expect? And uh, what is receiving Christ effect? And then the third week, the last week that we'll actually meet for teaching on this is that number eight, using our local church as a uh, crucial resource, fellowship and follow-up. So, and we're not really going to, because we already kind of talked about uh you know, throughout the whole program of evangelistic investigative Bible studies, uh, power and counter evangelism. And it's a, you know, we can, I don't think anybody here needs another teaching of the five steps in the Christ kingdom uh, right now as part of this program. But we have other teachings on that where I can direct you, email me or Deanna, um, and sharing and ministering the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we've got other teachings on that that we don't need to meet with. So just specifically for evangelism, we're going to talk about the bad news today, the good news next week, and using the local church as a, as a crucial resource for the last week. And then we'll have three weeks of workshops um, where we'll go over, uh, like, what are the Bible tracks we're using? What do we say when we talk to the door? How do we talk to somebody? Uh, and stuff like that. So... Back to the first page of this outline. Um, and just to give like a uh, setting an expectation. So we're combining two lessons into one. We're meeting at the condo. We're not restricted by any right state limits of like we have to be out by 10 p.m. So <laughs> we'll see how long we go. Uh, you guys are stuck here. Yeah. Most of you don't have to be to work till 8 tomorrow. So that gives us plenty of time. So, we're going to be looking at uh, the bad news, preparing hearts to hear the good news. So, uh, just based off of like people who have been around for a while or when we talk about the bad news, why is that important? Why is the bad news important? So that will give us a better understanding of what the good news really means. Yeah, so uh, we talk about the bad news so we understand the good news better. Right, something that I'll bring up multiple times Throughout this teaching is, you know, in Luke 7, uh, you know, the, uh, the prostitute who's at uh, the Pharisee's house at the party washing Jesus' feet with her tears. You know, the Pharisees are saying, like, why are you, if you knew what kind of sort of woman this was, you wouldn't even let her, let her touch you. And Jesus' response is, you know, she's been forgiven much, for she loves much, but whoever uh, hasn't been forgiven much doesn't love much. Right? So... Uh, you're, Jesus is saying your basis of how much you, your love and devotion and, and repentance is based on uh, the depths of your quality of how much you've been forgiven. So, you know, I would actually argue in that specific context that uh, depending on, you know, how much this, uh, well, I would say definitely in this context, this prostitute woman, if you were to weigh like the sins one against the other, uh, you know, although we say we we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? But whose sins were worse, this prostitute or the Pharisees? I would actually argue that the Pharisees' uh, sins were worse in rejecting Christ, who were entrusted with the law, who had the prophets, you know, uh, who were teachers of the law, that their sin of rejecting Christ was actually worse than this woman's uh, pre-Christ rejection in prostitution. <laughs> so really, so it's not saying that like, 
know, because this woman like did all these, she was a prostitute and whatever, and she lived a reckless life that therefore she was, she should forgive much, but it's, it's kind of a perspective thing. What you're, we're trying to get an accurate biblical view of what the good news is and the way we do that to make the good news gooder is to uh, look at the bad news and see how bad it really is, right? Without the bad news, the good news is actually bad news in like multiple ways. Because for one thing, like if we don't need redemption, then Christ died needlessly, which is pretty bad to say that God was not wise enough to avoid dying for no reason. Yeah. Also, telling people they need to repent when they're not actually doing anything wrong tends to be like annoying. Most people don't want to repent if they're not doing something wrong. So. Yeah, totally. So, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the, uh, the modern and postmodern dilemma in this pre or on this post Christian uh, world that we live in. Uh, and then we're going to look at our concepts like the nature of God, the Ten Commandments, and sin really necessary. So, uh, I don't think anybody in here, maybe the only person, maybe uh, Jane would know, but uh, we call it the reading the reverse negative because that's what we've been trained to call it, and no one's done any research to find out what it is and use a, crop, a proper uh, term of like if there's good news, then that implies that there's bad news. We call it the necessary implications. Or the necessary implications. But there's, there's an actual physical term that none of us have researched yet. So we're calling it the reverse negative. Hey, was it? Uh, it could be. I don't know. I, like I said, I, I haven't done the research. We call it the reverse negative. We're making up our own lingo. Uh, so the good news implies the bad news. So what is the good news? Um, let's just go with uh, Daniel. You just want to read uh, the good news and then the John Lee, you can read the bad news. Nice. The glad tidings of the kingdom of God and subsequently also of Jesus, the Messiah, and the foundation of his kingdom. The proclamation concerning Jesus Christ as having suffered death on the cross to procure eternal salvation for the men in the kingdom of God, but as restored to life and exalted to the right hand of God in heaven, thence to return in majesty to consummate the kingdom of God. The teaching of all of the implications of the historical facts of Christ's first advent. Yeah, that's pretty good news. But, uh, you know, so if we don't understand the backdrop of the bad news, which is uh, one way to look at it is uh, the entire Old Testament is the backdrop for the bad news. Uh, You know, uh, who went, did anybody here go to the, I don't think so, besides uh, people that are here that me, uh, to the Table Fellowship Conference where we talked about Genesis 1 through 4 um, just a couple, a few weeks ago. Uh, it was great because we spent like 15 hours total like just studying Genesis 1 through 4 and how uh, if you were to just read it, um, very actively in what's going on just those four chapters you're like oh my god like the whole world is falling apart <laughs> like this is really really bad you know like the deeper you get into it, and the more you understand like the effects of sin and the deception of satan and what it's doing to the world as a whole just in those four chapters you're like 
like you kind of want to be like holy crap like this is not good <laughs> like why are we here what are we doing uh it's like really really bad um but then you take everything else in the old testament where there's kind of like these ebbs and flows of like you look at uh you know just the effects of sin and what it's doing on creation and in the world that people are creating sinful men are creating uh in societies then uh throughout like the old entire old testament it's like it gets really really bad like people are sacrificing their children and uh and you know all sorts of things and it gets like you know so if you so go back tonight and just read the entire old testament you know before work tomorrow with the backdrop of the uh the bad news of seeing how bad the effects of sin are and just go ahead and read the entire old testament tonight all right, uh, Danny, you jumped in right in time. Uh, you want to read uh, B? No. Uh, the bad news. You would just read those three points there. Sure. Uh, number one, the biblical view of heredity primary performs every other religion. Yeah. So I'll try to explain these real quick. So uh, the bad news. Um, is essentially the backdrop denied by most modern men. So what do you guys think I mean by like, uh, so when we say bad news, is that like, we're sinful, we can't do anything on our own, we're slaves to sin, uh, we're fallen, we're separated from Christ, we're spiritually dead, we're unrighteous, all of our deeds are wicked apart from Christ, apart from new, new birth, and nothing we've ever done has ever been good apart from the grace of God. Unless God specifically intervenes in our lives, in our physical, mortal bodies and hands and does something then it's all bad all the time so what do you think i mean when we say that uh it's denied by modern men that right there that like people are bad all the time in every way apart from christ uh how is that denied or how does how does modern man deny that um by putting you can see that in the example of thinking that the government that is made up by man can save men. Um, and people don't expect corruption to be involved in government. They don't expect uh, men to cheat, lie, steal, murder. And they wonder why war is happening when they believe men are ultimately good and not ultimately evil. And But, you know, we know better than that. Oh, you want to help? Uh, the mugs are on the left cabinet. Yep. Yeah. So stadium is probably like the primary example of like the like global savior complex of if Christ isn't going to be a savior, somebody is, but that's not necessarily on like a personal individualized basis, but as a whole for society, the government's going to save you. They'll be. They know what's right and wrong. They know how to fix it. They know how to build a utopia, how to build a society where there is no more evil, no more wars, world peace. Um, you know, so that's like on the status level, but there's also, uh, you know, that number two forward in the rebirth of lane shifting, excuse me, like in modern psychology and sociology, which we'll get to, you know, a little bit further down here is that, you know, everyone needs like a savior. Like the problem is that like people know it's bad. People know there is bad and there's wicked people not that they would concede that all people are wicked and inherently wicked, um, but that everyone need, knows that there needs to be some kind of savior. There needs to be some kind of mechanism or organization 
or program or something implemented to make people choose the right path. And they would define like all those terms of what that means, right? Like the right path might be communism. Like fascism says that like the right path is like, well, let's just go with co like, like communism says like the right path is like overthrowing the rich people and the proletariats rising up, right? So the saviors are the working class proletariats rising up, revolting against the government and overthrowing them and they become a government. They'll be the saviors, right? So there's always going to be like a savior mechanism. Uh, but modern man's essentially denying that people are bad, that there is, it's really as bad as it is, and that there needs to be some other mechanism, right? So the biblical view of uh, hereditary, heredity is primary versus environment secondary, where the world flip-flops flip -flop, that. They would say, most people would say that people are either good or a blank slate, and it's the environment that we need to change the culture, we need to change the laws, we need to change the organization in order to change the people, right? But what's scripture's view? We gotta change the individual because there's something inherently wrong with them, that each individual is born in sin, uh, has this indwelling sin nature that they can never overpower, they can never defeat, they're dead in their trespasses, deceived by Satan in the kingdom of Satan and of darkness, they're blind and hardened, they're separated from Christ, and uh, that's how they were born. That's what they get. That's that's their nature. That's what they operate out of until uh, God intervenes, right? So uh, now, Melody, since you jumped in, uh, somebody, somebody keeps taking the spot of whoever's next. Uh, so if anybody else comes in, we'll just put them wherever that is. Uh, can you read Romans 3.23 and Romans uh, 5.12? We're, we're on the first page, about a third of the way down under bad news, point one. I don't think it's on the page. Well, yeah, it's not on the page. The You'll have to look it up. I can tell you Romans 3.23 is... Well, who can tell me Romans 3.23? Yeah. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's clearly saying... Everybody except for me, <laughs> everybody else, <laughs> right? No, obviously that's all people means all people. And twice as many people on Sunday. All right, Romans 5, can you grab Romans 5.12? No, that's good. So through one man, mm -hmm. later on goes to explain that who that one man was, Adam, right? So uh, through one man came all everybody else. You know, Adam and Eve uh, gave birth to everybody else. So because of his choice of sinning, rejecting God, hiding, becoming separated from God, and his unrighteousness, we have the same indwelling sin nature that controls us and controls our minds, our actions, our mortal bodies, and, and everything we make until, uh, or everything we choose, uh, and everything we do until Christ opens our eyes, and then fills us with the Spirit, and gives us new birth, and convicts us of sin, and causes us to become sanctified, right? Even, uh, you know, it's either, because Hebrews chapter 6 is like in the weirdest spot ever, 
uh, it's either the last part of Hebrews 5 or the first part of Hebrews 6 where it says, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, like we're taught or that we should teach as the foundations uh, for people is to repent from dead works. So what are dead works? Works under our own strength. Yeah, works under our own strength apart from faith, reliance, trust in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of God's revealed word. <laughs> right? So uh, what about like a, like what about, is feeding the homeless a good work? Yeah. Okay, so what if I, so what if I don't do that out of faith to Christ? Then it's dead. Then it's a dead work, right? So, uh, like even that is the foundation of like we're not. <laughs> the Bible says we're not all that cracked, all that cracked up, all that it's cracked up to be, right? Even the good things we supposedly do are dead works. not just dead works. What is what's our righteousness before God? Filthy, Filthy rags, right? Isaiah sixty four six, um, right? Like even like the best of our best of our best is still dead and filthy and disgusting uh, apart from Christ, you know, and his intervening power, right? Uh, so, but the entire, like everybody else, the entire world, there's no exception to it, has it completely flip-flopped and says, and, you know, it's something we're going to look at and examine in here because we're using this as a basis for uh, how we're going to go out and share the gospel is one thing to understand is every other religion has this flip-flopped says that environment is more powerful than your heredity and in internal sin nature. Islam, Buddhism, uh, uh, atheism, yeah, any, any form of materialism or atheism, uh, Hinduism, all has it like completely flip-flopped. And we'll see that uh, in multiple things, especially today, is that every other religion and worldview has it completely flip-flopped, turned on its head, or completely backwards. And that the biblical Christian worldview is the only one that makes any sense and has it right. Because it is right. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> we're not betting on that. We're, that's, where, that's our foundation. They all believe in works. Yeah, every other religion is a religion of works, is of... Uh, you know, in Islam, it's the five pillars that brings you closer to Allah. Uh, in Buddhism and Hinduism, it's uh, and all those mainly Hinduism that's karma based. Uh, but Buddhism is good works and and, and alignment, and you'll have a better life. Uh, and obviously, in any form of atheism, uh, has the idea of it's. It's more or less. It's more or less what? Licentiousness. It's just like... Well, well in terms of like how do you... Forget the justice system entirely. Yeah, yeah, if you press it out to that. But in terms of like how do people change, it's yeah. through their environment. Uh, it could be the justice system. It could be a different family. It could be medicine. It could be electroshock therapy. Uh, it could be cutting your hand off. Like literally all those are, would be viable options in any form of atheism, any one form of atheism. Um, so, uh, you know, Freud on the rebirth of blame shifting, excuse making and rationalizing in the late 1800s, like Freud, when he came out with his theories and, uh, was that the late 1800s, early 1900s? 
Okay. Uh, I was for some reason I was thinking I didn't have Ford in mind. I was uh, thinking of Darby. But anyways, um, you know that was the popularized psychoana- psychoanalysis theories of like we just need to. It's not the person's fault. It's the environment. It's what happened to them at an earlier age. It's because they were sexually abused. It was because they had a harsh father. It's because they grew up in inner city poverty. It's because it's everything but that they choose to make their own decision and they're accountable to those decisions. That's like the modern psychology like is what it's grown into. Uh, he died in 1940. He died in 1939, so it's probably the early, early 1900s, probably. Uh, so, uh, but the problem is like, that people make decisions, uh, and they—that's uh, the problem, uh, you know. From both views, like if you think it's, uh, you can interpret that however you want. But if you think it's more environmental, environmental is the problem is people make decisions, and we need to change their environment so that they can make less decisions. <laughs> if you think it's more heredity, which is the biblical, you know, primary view, is the problem is people make decisions. And they're sinful, and they're wrong, and they reject God, and they hate God, and they're dead, and they're sinful. And in order for people to make the right decisions, they need to do it through rebirth in Christ, right? So uh, do you see the, you know, how the bad news is being more and more and more rejected, like in our modern world, in our postmodern world, uh, as time goes on, like... There's not like watch the news. I don't watch the news because it just makes me angry. <laughs> like, uh, and I don't have time to watch the news, and I don't even know what channel it would be on. And I don't personally own a TV, so there's all these problems why I can't watch the news. <laughs> but I personally choose not to watch the news uh, because it's like you know you see like these like worldwide problems of like greed and economic disaster and famine and all these things, and nobody is ever like explaining that like individuals or groups of people to cl- together and collectively are making the wrong decisions that that is the basis for their outcome right uh you know it's it just makes you angry you know and then so under bad news point three our sin needs a savior or a rebirth rather than a therapist uh, a reformation you know which is basically every other religion is trying to reform someone's character someone's mind someone's works so that they become progressively better towards whatever their standard of good is right that's not at all uh the biblical worldview now we do get as we're going to uh, look at this um somewhere on here you know we're going to look at like there are more and more Western churches are leaning towards and being more influenced by the world than scripture and getting more of a, well, we just need to reform your actions. You just need to not smoke and drink. If you're having problems, just don't let the people in church know because uh, we got to keep a good image. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if you've got a pornography addiction, the answer is to disable your internet and do all these steps, but never actually come to Christ. Like that's the kind of like, you know, uh, yeah, treating the symptoms rather than the cause. We're like trying to like pick off leaves on a tree instead of like, uh, there's this really, yeah, there's there's this really famous guy. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Uh, he quoted like, you know, take the ax to the root. (laughs) His name was John. I think his last name was like the Baptist or something. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, like I, I mean, I just had a conversation with somebody last night about um, 
you know, I didn't like, you know, in my, I grew up in the church for 25 years of my life. You know, I still had like an anger problem, drinking problem. I was talking to this person about like, how did I handle like excessive abuse of alcohol? And, you know, there's tons of things that helped like, uh, you know, limiting myself and only drinking around Christian brothers and sisters and having someone keep me accountable and walking in the light. Like all those are great things. Right. But those are not the answer. The answer is I had like, and I told him, uh, cause I was at, I'll just say one of the brothers house and I was drunk. Uh, and I had like deep conviction by the Holy spirit of like, we could be praying or wasting our time and like, like we're wasting everything. And that was the last time I was drunk. Uh, cause I had a deep conviction that uh, from the Holy Spirit, I wasn't like, I think I'm going to feel convicted after this. Let's keep drinking until I do. Uh, like the conviction came on me when the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to realize like, wow, like here are like eight to ten Christian brothers and sisters gathered together and we could be like advancing the kingdom of God, at least by like prayer and supplication. And we're here like getting drunk. <laughs> what makes this different from the world? And the answer, I mean, there were, so just to clarify for those on the podcast, because it's, uh, I've, been, I've been hearing that people actually listen to this. Uh, there were several brothers and sisters who left because it was getting out of control. Uh, but I was not one of those. Uh, and this was several years ago. If several was four. Uh, so anyways, uh, you know, the answer, you know, wasn't like set up all these walls. Like those came af after I had a deep conviction of like, wow, I need to like make sure that I honor Christ and you know, and all these things and not, uh, not grieve the Holy Spirit and like obey, obey God. Uh, don't get drunk on wine for its debauchery. Or don't be, it doesn't say don't get drunk. It says don't be filled with wine. Remember, bring it down a level. Uh, but anyways, you know, uh, it's not just like, yeah. Uh, so, you know, like our sin and our nature, like we need a completely new life. We need a rebirth. We need to be born again. We don't need just like a little church enough. We don't need the right friends. We don't need the right program. What we need is like a completely new mind, a completely new way of life, a completely new life. Uh, and that's the, that's the only answer. And that could be the only logical and right answer. And uh, everybody else has it wrong. And everybody else is encroaching on the Western church's belief, and that's what we're exporting. Um, you know, just like, who was with me? Byron and Jane, uh, the guy we talked to on Friday. Uh, we probably did a little bit too much that we're out on, uh, what's that place called? Oregon District, evangelizing, and, you know, the Mopar guy. Uh, you know, we probably talked too long, you know, before we got to a gospel presentation, but, you know, as soon as he knew that we were, like, Christians, like, you know, he... He said, you know, I don't normally cuss and I don't normally, you know, he started to go back and say, like, I'm not really this guy. Because uh, he was like, because we're church people and he was cussing and had said something about drinking and cars. So he felt like that was bad. And he's like, oh, I'm not normally that way. You know, and we're like, <laughs> like, okay, like, that's great. <laughs> uh, you know, like instantly he was like, oh, like, you know, just thinking like, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. It's, this isn't how I normally am. And. Uh, this is only on Friday nights, right? All right, so in that point C, soil preparation, um, the gospel environment in modern post-Christian and post-modern culture. Uh, so what are we talking about with soil preparation in context of why we're talking about the bad news? 
So I think of biblical metaphors for soil preparation. Uh, what are we preparing the soil for? The word of God. Okay, what's a good metaphor that the scripture uses? Where's a seed, right? So, you know, we're talking about like soil, like the bad news is just prepared to get people to receive the good news. Um, you know, because they need to know how bad it is to know how good it is. And that's going to like dictate their, the entire rest of their life. Uh, whether they continue to receive the bad news, whether, is whether they continue to receive the good news. If they can't receive the bad news, they can't receive the good news. Um, so Matthew 13 is all about laying soils where the word of God is, uh, you know, the seed that goes into men's hearts and that's what bears fruit. Well, the one that's just like laid on the rocky ground on the top, what happens? The first soil. Well, no, the first one gets picked off by crows. Guess what? If it's at least under the soil, it can't get picked off by crows. <laughs> like if you go like a centimeter deep, the crows aren't going to get it. There you go. That's the first. Uh, you got to go at least like a little bit under the surface. But if you just go that deep, it springs up quickly and the sun beats down uh, and it gets scorched and dies. Right. So in soil preparation with the bad news, you need to not just throw it on the ground. It needs to go and it needs to go below surface deep. But then uh, it needs to go, you know, deeper to actually to where it produces a plant. Right. And then for the third soil, what happens if weeds sprout up? It gets, choked. it gets choked out, and it doesn't produce fruit. It's the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, or whatever. Uh, so, it, like, as we're like using the metaphor of Matthew thirteen, Luke four, uh, I'm sorry, Mark four, Luke eight, of the four soils being, you know, the word of God, especially in the form of the bad news being planted deeply, is, you know, this isn't just like a one-time shot. What we've been saying is a lifestyle of evangelism in the church, but you're really evangelizing to somebody until they become radically on fire, a disciple of Christ, sold out until their entire life is given as service to Christ. And some people you'll be evangelizing for 40 years, <laughs> uh, and you're going to continue to evangelize, right, until they can go and do the same, and then they can go and spend 40 years evangelizing to somebody uh, to get them, you know, fully converted on fire, for Christ and and all that comes with that right so you know evangelism is a long process it's not a, like receive this now and you can't really tell everybody all the bad news and expect it to go deep you know in a 30 minute to two hour talk it really just not that's not plausible unless someone else has had that conversation and talked with them and they've or read scripture or something to where they understand the depths of that bad news so uh you know, in our, like when we're talking about preparing soil, this is all about like digging deep, breaking up the fallow ground that's hard, that's got rocks and weeds, going deep to make sure that it's a plant that bears fruit. Because if, like, the reality is, like, we can, like, I, I can get people in the church. I could probably, like, do a mega church. I could probably start a mega church, you know, giving me 10 years. I got the tattoos. I know where to get skinny jeans. <laughs> I can talk charismatically. I could get a good haircut. I could get a nose piercing. I could get a trendy haircut or something. But, like, that wouldn't bear any fruit. I could, like, I could get a lot of people. I did sales, uh, you know, 100% commission, door to door, and I made more money than I do now. <laughs> like, I could, you know, it wouldn't 
uh, I'm not gonna say it wouldn't be that hard, but uh, like the realities are like if you just have a charismatic personality, you can get people to follow you, and you can get people. Like the the point is, are we preparing people to grow fruit for Christ's kingdom? That's like I don't want people in the church if they're not gonna bear fruit. I don't want people uh, if that's not. Not if they're not. That's not saying get the heck out. I'm saying if we're not preparing people to bear fruit for Christ's kingdom, then we're wasting our time. We're wasting our lives. And our, like this is pointless. Like it really is. So we're not getting skinny jeans, by the way. <laughs> the bad news, like that's part of the bad news, is people wear skinny jeans. <laughs> like that's how sinful it is out there today. Uh, so, like, just think about, like, as we're talking, like, it's very easy to neglect, and all of us are influences because we're all people pleasers. We're all, you know, wanting, we all have the fear of man. We all uh, want people to just, like, say, like, oh, look, I got one. I, I went out of evangelism, and this guy's coming to RCF now or something. Uh, like, that's a good check. Like, let's... Take a step back. Think about soil preparation. Of we like you, we have to start with the bad news. Like that's where it has to start. We have to have we have to know it deeply. We have to preach it deeply. We have to present it clearly, uh, and and boldly. You know, as Paul says, he ought to. He ought to present it clearly. He ought to present it boldly. So, um, all right. Let's go to the origins of denying the bad news. We need confidence too. Yeah, confidence, boldness. No fear of man. We need to go out there uh, bold as a lion. Yeah. So Sam, since you jumped in, <laughs> this, is the, <laughs> this is the third time someone's come in and jumped in the spot of where we're reading next. Right. So uh, under that first page, okay, point two, origins of denying the bad news, the fall of man, and the rebirth of blame shifting. Uh, can you read uh, that Genesis 3, 8 through 14? Yeah. Please. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I had commanded you not to eat from? Then the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, It was a serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Yeah. So this is where we get the the first two people of what we call you know blame-shifting, excuse-making, and rationalizing. Uh, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's. It's God's fault. It's the wife's fault. It's the serpent's fault. Uh, but it's not my fault. It's my husband's fault. It's everyone else's fault but me. Right, and we're going to talk about uh, the implications of that. You know, uh, so one thing to know, uh, like these are really good things because one of the things we're going to do in the workshops is see how not just biblical metaphors, but you know, biblical stories, the historical accounts, uh, should be used in gospel presentations. Right, so knowing this, these scriptures right here, you maybe not memorizing them verbatim, which would be good be great uh good would be being able to know these and say like you know when we're in a gospel centered conversation of saying you know uh you're this this is how sinful you are we're trying to help you realize and open your eyes and they say well you know it's it's not as bad as it is and like it's not as bad as it is what are you talking about like look at this like 
that's what, that's what uh, you know Adam and Eve did. They were saying it's not as bad as it is. It's somebody else's fault. And I just got deceived. It's just a little deception. It's not that big of a deal. Don't make it a big deal. Like, I only like cheated on my wife four times. It's not that big of a deal. It wasn't five. <laughs> like, I know somebody that, that did it six times. And I only did it four. It's not a big deal. Do they call that right? original sin? Uh, well, the concept of original sin is the same as saying you're indwelling sin nature. It's kind of a misnomer. That is the original sin. That is the first sin. But the theological concept of original sin would mean that we all have indwelling sin. So this is the original sin, but uh, in a theological context, it's not the original sin. <laughs> it's not what the name original sin refers to when used in theological conversation. Yeah. Even though, te realistically speaking, it is the real original sin. Yeah. It's so yes, yes and no. <laughs> uh, so examples of blame shifting abound. Uh, you know, this is just stuff I kind of added in here. Like it's all over. Like this is like, so blame shifting, excuse making, rationalizing is way bigger than we think. So let's try to like think about that over the next week and let that set in as we go out evangelizing. And even think about like uh, when you're in gospel standard conversations or you're discipling somebody, how often do they put off... Uh, their own guilt, their own conviction, and put it either on or, or because of some other reason. I can't do this. I can't read more scripture because I need to get eight hours of sleep. Nobody needs eight hours of sleep. <laughs> so uh, it's very recommended. Uh, I know a lot of people like Josiah who operate regularly on four to six, and he's still alive. And it's bore more fruit in his life that he stays up and studies, and, and not just in his spirit and in his Christian walk, uh, per se, but in his work life. Like, you regularly uh, are able to get four to six hours of sleep, stay up, study, sometimes scripture, six to seven. Uh, well, four to, four, we can say four to seven. Uh, and you're still alive, and you're still... Your mental aptitude doesn't seem to be going down and you seem to be productive at work and, and everything, right? So, uh, you know, so the first example is modern leftist politics. Like right now we have an assault on our first and second amendments just here in America. We'll work our way backwards is like, what's the idea with uh, just in political views of the left's idea of banning all guns? Those who do, or anybody who wants to ban all guns. Guns are bad. Guns are a problem. We can't... If the gun has more than 10 rounds in it, that's a problem. The gun's the problem. <laughs> that's ludicrous, right? Uh, without being, like, super political. The problem is, like, people shoot people. That's the problem, is that there's evil men, and they're culpable of sin, and they're able to uh, do evil things. Like, evil is the problem. Sin is the problem. The problem is, like, that people... Like, if... Like, the whole... You know, just to, uh, although I say less political, to get more political, is in, you know, in Great Britain, like, they're throwing acid on people in the middle of the streets. And they don't have guns. But they do have knives. And now they're banning knives. But they're still throwing acid at people. Hearts haven't changed. 
yeah, now they're going to outlaw acid, and they're going to throw rocks, and they're going to outlaw rocks, and they're going <laughs> to throw something else. And, yeah, and then they're going to hit them with their fists, and they're going to outlaw fists. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And then what's the problem with, like, you know, taking away the First Amendment? Like, what's the idea between you can't say these bad things? Like, the bad words are the problems, right? You can't say this. You can't say, I don't even, you can't call her a him when she's a him that changed to a her because that would hurt her or him, whichever one it is. They. Zin. You have to use the proper pronouns, right? Because the words are hurting, right? No, the problem is uh, if, now this is taken a little bit, like the problem is that people are sinful and they wouldn't consider using, they might not even know what is the right pronoun or whatever it is, right? It's like, it, so it becomes like absolutely ludicrous, ludicrous to say that other things are the problem. Guns are the problem. Words are the problem. Uh, safety regulations are the problem. You know, uh, whatever. Like, you know, there's, I think, like, it's just blame shifting. It's making other things the problem than what the actual problem is, that there's indwelling sin, people are born evil, every person has a bad nature to them and inherently wants to hurt other people in some form or fashion, whether that's with words, with ideas, with their hands. Everyone's a murderer, according to Christ. Wasn't that, um, I think, I can't remember exactly what Greg said, but I think he said that like, if we count up like the number of years on the earth where like we didn't have like wars or something, it wouldn't even like total to like four years. Yeah. Something like that. And that's given the historical counts that we do know of. Yeah. So I'm not sure there is even a single, uh, depending on what you define on legitimized war, of a single day or week that we haven't experienced war in the entire history of history. Um, all right, so number two, the essential essence of uh, modern psychology and sociology. So this is both left and right politics. So no longer moving in. Uh, the left is the wor worse by far, in my opinion. Uh, but the right does the same thing. Uh, that's the nature. So the entire nature of politics in our modern day is, uh, and government theory in America is what? What's gonna? What do we need to do? And what do the politicians need to do? Get the federal government a law, more laws, more programs. Like, neither the left or the right. And there's probably only like I don't know very much about politics, like modern politics, honestly. So I only know of like one or two politicians currently, and like one or two people that are running for political positions that are actually not like on a like statist implement programs, make more laws, more taxes more taxes here, less taxes here, but put the taxes over here. Like they're all saying more government, more programs, more change the environment and the people will change. Can create, create a conducive environment for a utopia and the utopia will grow. That's pretty much what modern politics is. And neither one of those is right. Both of those are so far from the truth. It's scary. Uh, all right, number three, blame-shifting excuse-making leads to victimhood, defensiveness, bitterness, hopelessness, and disempowerment, right? So uh, especially, you know, I added in there, you know, I changed these around. We've used these a couple years ago. Um, but uh, I add stuff, take stuff away, you know, just as Scripture says, Steve gives and Steve st takes away. Uh, oh, wait. Oh, my God. 
Uh, bad joke. Bad joke. Uh, so victimhood, like, what would be the problem? How would people change if, like, let's just, uh, in any sense, we don't even need to, like, bottleneck it into anything. But if you're the victim, do you need to change? No. No. You're innocent because you're the victim, right? So nothing that you did in that sense or context was wrong. There's nothing that you did to create a problem. Therefore, you don't need to do anything to change the problem, right? You're not culpable. You're not responsible. You're the victim. So other people need to change. The environment needs to change. We need something else besides you to take account for what you did and change, right? So the same thing for defensiveness, bitterness, hopelessness, and uh, disempowerment. You can't like empower people to change in, in any way, like individuals, societies, governments, economic systems, financial systems, or uh, education systems, whatever. Like if um, they don't identify the problem and the problem isn't something that they can change, if it's something else that's shifted somewhere else, then they could never change. They can never be empowered to become free or uh, better themselves or whatever in any sense, right? Because that's the nature of blame shifting, excuse making, and rationalizing. So it is so imperative that like when we're out there sharing the gospel that we are able to identify the language people are using, they're not going to say, uh, they're not going to use the word blame shift, <laughs> rationalize, or excuse make. Right? It'd be very easy. We could say that. We could say, oh, well, I'm just waiting to hear blame shift, rationalize, excuse make. Okay, not yet. Oh, he said blame shift. He's, he said he's a blame shifter. Good. Uh, right. No, people aren't going to say that, but you need to be able to pay attention in a conversation and listen and look at cues of when people are saying that they're the victim, something happened to them, something else needs to change, it's someone else's fault, it's their mom's fault. They grew up in the church, therefore they're a Christian. <laughs> That's an excuse. That's a rationalization. You don't, that means you don't know what a Christian is, and therefore you're probably not one, you know, which we'll handle uh, in the workshops. Tons of objections, and you know, that's one of them. Uh, you know, is that like, I grew up in the church, therefore I'm a Christian. But most people don't say it that plainly. So being able to like, identify language that people are using uh, you know, when it comes to, if they start getting defensive uh, or they show signs of bitterness, like then you know that they're shifting the blame, like there was a valid hurt probably, uh, or something valid happened to them, which is totally valid, but their response is not valid. So, uh, you know, we'll handle, like this is a big one. So we're gonna handle a bunch of, in the workshops at some point, objections to people who claim to be Christians, but in all reality, probably aren't. And one of those is, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church because uh, the church is full of hypocrites. Or because something happened at the church. Every church I went to, I got hurt in some way. Well, okay, that's probably that's probably very true. Every church I've been to, I got hurt. Because <laughs> just yesterday, you know, uh, my pastor tried to tell me something that I didn't like. And it, I really don't like that. I don't like when he tells me, like, I need to repent and change. Oh, yeah. It was pretty bad. <laughs> Deanna was there. Uh, you know? <laughs> it's because, like, the, number one, the truth hurts. It could be a realistic thing. Uh, and number two, 
uh, people are sinful, sometimes they tell you things that are hurtful that aren't true. So either way, you're getting hurt everywhere you go. Uh, there's a uh, <laughs> there's a, a famous quote I love from a movie. Uh, I'll just I'll tell you the movie afterwards. But the quote is, uh, "Life's full of pain. You gotta suck the joy out of it every chance you get." <laughs> it's from a movie, Hot Rod. It's a comedy. Uh, uh, <laughs> So, like, every, like, your whole life is going to be painful. Your whole life is, is going to be full of people who are uh, not completely sanctified to Christ and saying something that isn't completely true or is true and you're not completely sanctified and it hurts. <laughs> Welcome to life. Uh, <laughs> great. Move on. Um, you know, so it might have been a valid pain and hurt. Like, they might have said, like, something that was truly wrong, not truthful and hurtful, but their response to that is not like true, good, and they're making rationalizations that like because they said something hurtful to me or they did something or they hurt my family, therefore I can't be in the church. Okay, well then you can't be in any church. And if you can't be in any church, you're not a Christian. And we're gonna have to like in gospel conversations tell people that clearly, plainly, lovingly, with gentleness and respect. And there we go. So, um, number four, the underlying assumptions of the politics of envy, guilt, pity, entitlement, redistribution. Uh, I live in the inner city. I can't get a job. I've got this. I've got this problem. The war took my leg. I was born blind. Whatever. Uh, some of those things might be valid to a point, right? All of those things might be like real things. Uh, but... You know, I'm obviously honing on them, that redistribution of wealth thing, uh, you know, but like it's always someone else's problem. Now they need to pay me like I just I just I, I try not to even read the news. Uh, like I said, I try I don't watch the news, but I try not to read it either because it just makes me angry. And I just heard something about like some politician is trying to make reparations for generations past of slave owners a thing again i'm like didn't we do that in like 2008 like like we didn't they do a reparations thing in 2008 like are there more uh, like how long is this gonna go on uh like you already nobody nobody is alive anymore <laughs> like yeah that was totally awful that sucks uh is the is, is, is that the answer uh is there a deeper answer like, how do we ensure that, like, this doesn't happen again? Because we're headed there. Um, all right, number five. Uh, the prevalence of blame shifting is the source of despair today. Teen suicide, culture, poverty. Uh, must change circumstance rather than empowering yourself by changing yourself. Uh, I looked at it like one in six teens. I was looking at suicide uh, rates uh, earlier today or last night or something. And one in six teens uh, actively... Like in, uh, this was done, I think in 2012 or 13, actively thinks about or attempts suicide. And as you go in from a biblical view of, uh, now, now in my perceptions of people who would hate themselves the most, so like the LBGTQ and the uh, transgender communities have 10 times higher, five for just LGB, uh, but trans uh, is 10, jumps from four times higher, just in, so one in six, 
times that by four is just the the lesbian, gay, and bisexual community is four times higher, and then the trans community is ten times higher on attempted suicide and successful suicide rates. So from my perception, that's people who know that there's an inherent problem, that there's something wrong. I figure anybody who attempts suicide, uh, I want to say, I want to be all-encompassing because there are uh, mental diseases and stuff that would contribute, but someone who's has a clear conscience, I'm talking about like not mentally unstable, uh, knows exactly what they're doing, uh, 10 times higher for the trans community than, uh, so what would that be translated, be over 10 times higher of, you know, what I figure is people who inherently know that there's a problem, have a lot of self-hatred, and act upon it. So the website I was reading and getting all these statistics from, uh, pulled them from the CDC, but was a pro uh, LGBTQA association. So they're saying, again, the, how do you fix that? Uh, the problem is be a loving, warming family, that there's nothing wrong with anything that your acceptance, love, don't, don't confront, don't say that there's an inherent problem and that they can change and empower themselves. Just like allow them to do whatever they want to do and that will relieve the problem, right? Which could never be the case, right? Because they already have a community, right? Uh, you know, I don't know what the statistics are on it, but, you know, just within, like, the gay community, uh, if they have a rejecting family, guess what they do? They don't go to their family anymore. They, they're wholly heartedly in the gay community, and they have a very loving and accepting and open community. So anybody who's in the gay community and commits suicide, you can't any longer say it's based on love and acceptance and freedom and stuff. You can't you can't really make that excuse uh, because they have that. Because everybody has a, almost, I shouldn't say everybody, but everybody finds themselves and is looking for a community of acceptance that they're going into, right? So that's why we have chess club, <laughs> right? We got video game club. Uh, what's that? Math club. Math club. Math club, yeah. So all these people who might, you know, so let's take all those examples, like, so jocks would call them nerds. Someone who loves chess and math and video games isn't going to join a sports club and get ridiculed and not play sports, right? They're not going to do that. They're going to join an association of a community of like-minded beliefs and practices who accepts them as they are, because everyone else is as they are, right? We as a community do that as the Christian community should do that 10 times more of not just people who are like us, look like us, act like us, even have the same beliefs, but we should be a welcoming community that if someone struggled with homosexuality or transgenderism or gender confusion, that we could like literally accept them into the community, not on basis of anything, and you know, over time uh, help them to confront them with the truth and love for real, long-lasting change, right? But no other community is capable of doing that. No other community has those ideas. Because like what we talked about earlier, every other community is not grace-based. Every other religion, faith, worldview is works-based. So you can't just like try, 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 try really hard to not be a homosexual. <laughs> that's, that's not the way it works, right? You can't just like try, try, try to not like be a thief anymore and not have thiefish desires and steal things. You might just steal in secret or something, right? So 
uh, it's not empowering. Like blame shifting, excuse making, it's, it doesn't empower the person to address the problems and change. Uh, then number six, most importantly, it leads to self-righteousness, uh, which is you know gospel unpreparedness and hardness of hearts. So how does blame shifting, rationalizing, excuse making lead to self-righteousness? What's the, what's the connection there? Yeah. If I'm not wrong, what am I? Right. right. <laughs> there you go. Uh, if I've never done anything wrong, if it's not my fault, then therefore I'm right. If it's someone else's fault, if it's my dad's fault, if it's the church's fault, that means I'm right. I'm in the right. They're wrong. Everybody else is wrong. Jesus Christ was wrong when he said uh, that this is love, that you would lay down your lives for one another, which inherently means you're in a community together. Like Jesus, like that's what they're saying when people say that they're not in a church, they're not in a community, uh, and that they won't be in a church because they're hypocritical. Well, you're a hypocrite. <laughs> right, you're a victim, and you're making excuses, and that, like, it leads, and it is self-righteousness, which means it, if it, as it continues, like it's much harder for people who have been in that way of life and mindset and spirit for 40 years to come to Christ and hear the gospel because like they've got like, you know, uh, I don't know fossil layers or anything, but uh, they've got like layers that are built on top of layers which are condensed on top of layers and you have to dig down really deep the longer time goes on, uh, which is why I like talking to younger people, just because it's a little easier. <laughs> there's less, there's less ground to till, right? Uh, people in their 20s and 30s than in their 50s, 40s, uh, 60s or something, right? Like people are like onions. <laughs> people are like onions, yeah. All right, so number seven, it, so it just like blame shifting, rationalizing, excuse making destroys souls, right? Uh, if it leads to self righteousness, if they don't like shallowness, passivity, like if they're not the problem, they could never receive Christ, they could never become a Christian, they could never repent and bear fruit, they could never like not be their own God like deciding what is truth if everyone else is the problem, if it's always the environment, somebody else, if they're not the problem, if they don't see how bad it is, or if they say, yeah, I'm bad, I'm a sinner, but like their idea of sin is like, yeah, I made a few mistakes, it's not that big of a deal, it doesn't like eternally separate me from the holy one true creator because uh, he's a just God, like repaying those for the deeds that they've done, you know, uh, then like they could never come to Christ they will destroy like they might not uh, it might not flesh itself out and become incarnate fully uh, in this life but their entire soul their entire destiny is doomed to destruction so why we need to bring the bad news start with the bad news help them see it give them a little light Break up a little ground here, break up a little ground there, plant some seeds, water them, and pray that God gives the growth and, and heals the sick, raises the dead, and opens the eyes of the blind. Right? 
So it also leads to no fear of God. How could you like? How could you fear God if you're not the problem? He loves you. Right. He loves you. Uh, if he just loves you, and we're going to talk about why he doesn't just love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, that's a heresy. That's false, and that's not true, or could not be true. Uh, the the possibilities are not true. Was why we don't start that way. Um, but you know, Proverbs one two through seven talks about. Uh, the fear of God is the foundation of understanding. Uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? Like you can't actually even begin to know anything unless you come with a holy fear and reverence towards the eternal creator who is the basis for wisdom, morality, knowledge, way of life, perfectness, holiness, righteousness. You could never actually even know anything rightfully. You're like, so the implications of that, like just to understand how bad the bad news is, just like we talked about like, Seemingly good works are completely bad and unrighteous if not done through new birth in Christ and faith in him, power of the Holy Spirit, and mind and to further the kingdom. All right? So I'm not saying this was Mother Teresa, but we all recognize Mother Teresa as like the greatest woman on the planet to have lived, right, in the last century. Anybody? Can anybody name another woman that was greater and did greater works than Mother Teresa? Don't even. Don't even. <laughs> Every one of you should have mentioned your mothers. See how sinful you are. Uh, that's how sinful you are. Uh, so, like, so if Mother Teresa uh, didn't do it through the lens of new birth and faith in Christ, even though she's recognized globally as the most doing the most good works all of those were heaping piles of trash before god and trash would be a, a nice way of putting it scubalon <laughs> always back to scubalon right so like so wisdom like even you know what is uh is it second corinthians 2 first corinthians 1 say about like the wisdom of this world is foolishness Right, like, like there's all these people doing like seemingly good things and scientists and you know doing things to combat cancer and this is all great and uh, I think it's a grace of God through uh, the truth of postmillennialism that the world is getting better and better until Christ returns. But their specific works and what they're doing is completely unwise and foolish if they're not doing it to glorify Christ. Like they themselves, even though they're doing something ordained uh, by God for the betterment of humanity, right, is still foolishness and not even uh, real wisdom, or what the Bible calls wisdom, uh, if they're not doing it in faith towards Christ. Like, every, like so, uh, so that's just like scientific things, but like, look at like psychology, uh, education, the edu education system. Uh, you know, especially so I think psychology is because it's directly working with like fixing people. Um, is like it's all like it's I, I, I don't know if I have it up anymore. Uh, so just like in uh, this goes through like a I'm gonna use an evolution of to use that term uh, of modern psychology and their perspectives. So it started with Freud in the uh psychodynamic perspective, then it went to the behavioral perspective, then it went to the cognitive perspective, then it went to the biological perspective. You know, these are on major ideas throughout the 
psychology's uh, history since the 1850s or something, the cross-cultural perspective, the evolutionary perspective, and now the humanist perspective. So since psychology has been popular since at least the early 1900s, we've got 120 years under our belt, how much has it fixed people? Like it doesn't seem to be doing any good, right? Like I don't see it working very well. Um, because the wisdom of the world is foolishness. It's absolute blasphemy. The best psychology for anybody. Yeah, totally is. That, what's normal? Jesus was normal. Jesus is the yeah, is the really standard of man. Yeah, totally. All right, so we're only an hour and fifteen minutes in. That's like Yo. that's uh, almost almost <laughs> almost got oh, one man. page down, and we got three to get two to go. <laughs> so, like I said, we're condensing two lessons into one. It's probably going to be a little longer. Thanks for coming to the condo. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, in denying the bad news, and not just denying the bad news, but how bad it really is, we've got enemies from without. You know, outside of Christianity and enemies from within. So we've talked about it like a lot from without. Uh, modern psychology, sociology, science, pluralism—they're open to every idea. Literally, the idea of tolerance from the humanistic perspective is: I'm tolerant of every view except Christianity. <laughs> That's literally what it boils down to: is you can believe whatever you want as long as it's not Christianity. <laughs> as long as it's not like radical. It's true. Yeah, well, as long as it's not like radical devotion to Christ uh, and his law and his word and he's right and everything else is wrong because that would be unloving and intolerant based on their humanistic perspective and the standards, right? So let's talk about the, uh, the we do have enemies within the church. I'm not talking about wolves, right? Where there are heresies, but that's not what I'm mostly talking about. Uh, so... Enemies from Within is a partial teaching of popular points of the good news and no bad news. There's probably nobody in here since uh, between everybody we go to uh, a couple different churches and they're all good on the gospel and nobody probably has not heard very good sermons on how bad the bad news is uh, and how much you can utterly and only depend on Christ. Like Probably nobody in here hasn't heard a message in the past two or three weeks on that. Uh, you know, we've got three churches represented, right? And I would doubt that anybody hasn't heard about the bad news <laughs> in the last month or so, right? Uh, but that's not the way, like, uh, you know, when I went back and we were teaching on, like, the need to reexamine uh, evangelism. So I listened to a, a couple sermons from a popular multi-campus megachurch in the area, and it was about, like, as humanistic garbage as you can get. Uh, I'll send this room to you if you want. Uh, you know, just talk to me later. But, like, there was no mention of, like, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. There's no, there was no pointing to, like, Christ is the only and only answer for all of your needs and that you have a need and that need is to radically be converted to Christ and that you're dead and you're falling and you're a slave to sin and you're separate from God apart from that and you need to crucify your flesh you need to bear your cross, and you need to follow up after after Christ, and that's the only way you're ever going to really be alive. There was like none of that. It was like, Jesus loves you. He wants you to have some faith, and here's a 10-minute story about my kids, which has something to do with the sermon, and 
Uh, I hope this blesses your day with some level of encouragement. So, you know, it's really like, uh, like, I, I don't know how else to like say it. And I hope nobody, like really think about deeply like this sentence. Like, I really believe that upwards of, if I had to put a, a number on it, upwards of like 60 to 80% of people who regularly attend church are not converted in a biblical sense. I'm not saying like in our church, I'm saying in all of America. And I don't think that's overstating the case because I don't, like I don't know a whole lot of, not just denominations, but individual churches that are actually preaching the gospel like in a halfway truthful sense of my just basic, like I'm not like very well learned or read and I'm not that great of a Christian and I've only been a Christian for like four years, but like when I read the Bible, I don't, and I see what's out there, I don't see that happening. I don't see an even a desire to want that happen. And that's really, really scary. That's why we're going out evangelizing. That's why we're gonna get to have Josiah stand on the street corner and proclaim, <laughs> have large crowds gather and people are gonna hate us. <laughs> I mean Josiah. People are gonna hate Josiah. That's why you're. That's why I'm, we want him to be raised up because. <laughs> yeah. So like so for the enemies from within, I'm not saying that like there's wolves in the sheepfold. Although there are, what I'm saying is we've been more influenced by the world systems and humanistic ideas than anything else in in Western modern Christianity. And that's really the case for the last 100 years. We've been doing this for 100 years. The Western Church knows exactly what it's doing. And, like, I don't understand how we could have sermons for only 30 minutes, number one. Uh, but even if in a short sermon for 30 minutes, how you can only mention one or two scriptures and maybe Christ, and maybe Christ, and call yourself a church. Like, you're not standing on the authority of God's scripture, his revealed word on Christ as the incarnate mediator uh, between God and man and that there's, like the rest of the world is deceived by the devil and we can't have newness of life apart from him and being, you know, rebirthed by the spirit, like then what are you preaching? Who's, who, where did you get your other ideas? Because you didn't get it from scripture. So, uh, so we're going to look at an example. Yeah, modern philosophies. Yeah. So I want you guys to listen to this. Uh, this is what's commonly known as the four spiritual laws. How many people like how many people have heard of the four spiritual laws? Just about everybody. Uh, it's a way of doing that somebody, uh, I think there was actually a, a campus group, if I remember, uh, that we won't name, uh, that is a, a nationwide popular campus group that originated these, I think, but most, a lot of people use this. A lot of people, uh, you can ask me later who it is. Uh, oh, you saying doing this. Okay, gotcha. Uh, well, you can ask me later who it is. I don't mind telling you privately. Um, but, like, this is the way a lot of people, I don't know statistic numbers, but one campus group uses this as their basis for evangelism. And they're a very evangelistic group, which is great. And I think they have good intentions, but don't misinterpret my words there. 
Um, and I'm not saying like every other group is bad or that they're not Christians and they don't know the gospel and we need to make them repent. I'm saying is there's a lot of confusion out there and we're not the only way. There's a lot of very strong Christian groups and churches and we're just a piece of what we think God wants to do in restoring the church, a very, very small piece. There's bigger people who are better at the same ideas that we have doing it better and more consistently and have more influence. Uh, so here's the four spiritual laws. Number one, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. That is a terrible way to start the gospel. Please, if I ever hear you doing that, like I will, like I will literally stop you from saying, if you approach somebody and say God loves you and has a, and offers a wonderful plan for your life, I'm going to interrupt and say, wait a minute. No. That might not be the case. Can I also say a thing too? Also, like the one thing I also find that's like really scary is that the whole uh, the whole phrase like living your best life oh, yeah. has become like a huge trend just over the past year. Like they even have it as like Snapchat filters now, and it's like super scary. If God loves you, what's the implications? What's the implications of God loves you? He accepts everything you do. If you don't define what love is, you're going off of, they already have a definition in their head of what love is. If God loves you and offers you a wonderful plan, so what's wrong with offers you? You can or cannot take it. That's, you're, you're the judge now. Do you want to take it or not? It's up to you. It's no big deal. But God loves you because that's where we started. God loves you and he's offering you a wonderful plan. Well, that's only if you don't think you already have a wonderful life and you want to change. And he could help you increase whatever you think a wonderful plan is. But he already loves you and accepts you. The problem with that is uh, uh, Psalm 11, 6, Psalm 11, 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. I don't ever, like, don't ever approach anybody and, and say, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Because, number one, that may not be true. They could love violence and be wicked people, and God's wrath abides on them until they're rebirthed and repent and bear fruit in accordance, right? But how would they ever repent if God loves them? What are they repenting of? Who the, who the hell knows, Right? So, like, that is a terrible, absolutely terrible way, and that is, no, that, is not a, that is not the gospel of the Bible. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. That's law one. That's, like, where you start. You don't start there. The God, like, John the Baptist didn't start there. <laughs> what did John the Baptist start with? Yeah, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Laid, like you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Who told you there was a wrath coming? Why aren't you, like, why aren't you cutting to the root? Worthy. Yeah, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Worthy, what are you doing? You're supposed to be teachers of the law and you're brood of vipers, you sons of snakes. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan. <laughs> he doesn't, that's not what he's like. It's wild, it's so far out there. And that's, this is the basis of a lot of people of what they think the gospel is. And that's not the gospel. That is deception. 
And if I ever hear you, if I'm ever out with you and that's how you start, I will stop. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, I will stop you and I will interrupt you right there. And I will say, I'm, I don't know what I'll say, but <laughs> I will stop you. And I hope that anybody else, uh, like, because now we're, we're only focusing on the bad news, uh, would stop that person too. If you, uh, or, you know, so I might stop you, but then you might, you might uh, explain the way of uh, Christ more more adequately <laughs> afterwards also uh, either way is acceptable in my mind but uh, so law number two man is sinful and separated from God therefore he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life oh now we got there okay uh, why wouldn't we start there which is my question uh, man is sinful and separated from God but I thought he loved me Therefore, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for his life. So what's the problem there? That even if you're in direct rebellion with God, you think that he still has a good plan for your life. Right. The and problem that, is... That a loving God would let, allow himself to continue to be separated from you. Yeah. The problem is, again, my choice of I'm not experiencing, there's something, because of my sinfulness, I'm not experiencing... God's love, right? So the choice is, again, mine. It's not, and how do I experience that, right? Because of my sinful, uh, and I'm separated from God. So God's love is still trying to be poured out on me, though it's my choice whether I want that. Not that I have to, like, repent, or uh, that my entire nature is bad, and that God's wrath abides on me, and he hates every single thing I'm doing when I don't have a heart uh, in newness of life towards Christ. Right? That's the difference. Uh, although, like, a lot of those phrases could be towards truth, right? Or somewhat accurate. Law three. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. What do you guys think about that? I think it's alright-ish, but like, for one thing, yeah, it's not enough, and also the whole... Yeah. Well, they're just paraphrasing, because obviously these are going to go into deeper discussions. Right. I think the focus on the wonderful plan for a life isn't really good, because they're going to hear wonderful and think something that's close to the opposite of what his plan for life could actually be. Yeah. Like, if you accept the gospel and repent and believe, then you're called to minister to others, and that is wonderful. But that's not their definition of wonderful. Their definition right. of wonderful is I get money and I do what I want and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and it's still about the plan for my life. It's not about like, like, uh, second, I always forget, second or first Corinthians 4 1. Like, this is how one ought to regard us slaves of Christ. Slaves, by the way, you're slaves, you're bond servants. You have a master, you have to be obedient. He's the Lord, you're the master, you don't get a choice of what you do, what you say, how you feel, because it has to be. And submission to the master, and everything a part of that is direct, high-handed rebellion. It's like, what if, what if your plan for your life is like, what if you come and find out that it's not the same as God's? Like, what do you yeah. do? Yeah, <laughs> what do you do? Then that that actually grew. Like, now my opinion is that this way of evangelizing these four spiritual laws grooms you to live a half-hearted life for Christ. Because if God's plan, which is, what should we like? What is uh? Lord say in the, in the, after the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount uh, about what we should expect as Christians. Persecution. Persecution. 
That sounds like a wonderful plan. Yes. <laughs> right? So when you experience persecution as uh, the third soil in Matthew 13 says, uh, on account of, oh, I'm sorry, on the second soil, on account of the word, you fall away quickly. So it's my conviction and belief that this is actually preparing people more for uh, to reject God later on in life, but get them in the church now. Now, that's my opinion. You can do with that whatever you want. Let's look at law number four. Do you have something? I think it really makes it important that you set the foundation that you're a slave to sin now. Yeah. You've got a master, and we're going to look at you've got a father, and you are obedient to your father. Well, now also, too, like most Christians I've or your slave known, master. <laughs> most Christians I've known that like grew up in the church, and they don't get like the full effect of like the gospel. They, mm -hmm. It's like uh, um, in the scripture where it says, like, you turn them into twice the sons of the devil, but you are. Like they turn into like twice the sons of the devil, yeah. And it's like twice that. Some never twice ever the sons come of hell. back. Hell. Yeah, yeah, hell. I guess I should. All right, law number four. I gotta be honest with you. Actually, I read laws one and two, <laughs> so we're kind of. I'm actually kind of winging it here. I'm just assuming that the rest of them follow suit. Uh, it's just it's really hard to read the rest of them when the first one makes you really angry. Uh, we must in. So law number four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. Our personal Savior. No church. Right? Wait, There's no idea. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'll read it again. Law number four says, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our life. So there's no idea of the church. I think... Every gospel message in the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, has the church in it. That's why, uh, so for deeper studies, go and listen to the 120-part series or the 12-part series that Greg did on the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. And you know that's why we're ending the third part of like using your local church as a critical resource. Because... Like what we talked about objections before, if they don't join a church, now we would like them to join our church, but if they don't get radically on fire and join a church, then there's a problem. If you don't, like if you say you're a Christian and you're not part of a church, there's a problem. The problem is you're not a Christian. <laughs> Sorry, that's what Jesus said. Uh, so, and again, the idea is it's all focused on you experiencing God's love and plan for your life. And I'm sorry, that's not the gospel. So that's the most popular evangelism, evangelistic presentation out there. By not numerically, right? Uh, so it's, that's super scary to me, if you understand like what, the, what that's actually going after. So uh, from within, like, those are like, so where was the bad news in there? Well, the second point was uh, you're sinful and you can't experience God's love and plan in that state. But it's not like you're a slave to sin, you're a son of the devil, God's wrath abides on you, you will eternally be separated from him in torment and in hell, and his wrath will eternally remain on you if you remain in this state, if you're not repentive, if you don't bear fruit, if you don't come to Christ, receive him, like, right, there's no, the bad news, there is bad news in there. So let's not get that wrong. There is bad news. 
just very minimalized towards my individualistic perspective. But it's like they want to keep it um, keep it down because they don't want to. Um, they don't want to make you upset. Like, yeah, there's bad news, but but. But here's the good news, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always. This is just a tactic I learned uh, in management. Uh, I always like to create a. I just realized this last week, so I was super excited. I realized I was creating a chiasm uh, in the way I told people bad news. I would tell them something good over here, and then I'd, I'd sandwich it with the bad news. I'd be like, "Hey, man, you're a great friend, but could you could you please stop spitting on me? Uh, but your breath is really nice." <laughs> uh, or something. Uh, Oh yeah. So like even in my like I don't I don't know if this is a sinful amount, but uh, like I even like like to soften the blow of something you know just used arbitrarily of like start with good news, get the bad news in there, then end with good news. Uh, you know, it's probably not a good way to make friends by all bad news. Uh, probably because there is good news, right? But not this week. <laughs> not this week. It's all bad, right? So. Uh, like, so even like, so that's, so I don't want to just put out there that like, these are other groups and these are what other groups are doing. This is what you're doing, right? You're not like pounding their face in with the bad news, right? Is anybody pounding anybody's face in with the bad news recently? Right? We, we're always propping. Like, you know, take it easy because they're, they're not even babes in Christ yet. Well, then um, I, they never heard enough. They never seen it done this way before. From life in general. Yeah. So we can welcome people in. Like I said, we can be loving, speak the truth in love, be gentle and respectful, uh, while telling them that like, and it's what's more loving than telling somebody that you're separated from Christ and you need to repent and you need to become obedient to Him and you need a new heart and you need a new life in Christ. Like it's actually more unloving to let somebody go in their sin. And because you don't want to offend them or you don't want to because of your own personal fear of man or because you want to stay friends. Peace, peace, there's no peace. Peace, peace, there is no peace, right? Yeah. So, uh, like, we need to go hard after the bad news and we need to realize how bad it is and present that clearly. And we can do that without browbeating people with scripture. We can do that in love, which is the truth, and we can do that gently and respectfully. Mm -hmm. uh, like, when you come to the workshops, on Thursdays, like I'll show you videos of uh, evangel street evangelism of uh, how people do that. You don't have to like yell at people. <laughs> you don't have to use exclamation points. You can use commas. I uh, seen a movie theater a couple days ago. She stood up and said, "This is what's going to happen to you if you don't follow Jesus Christ." She was comparing to the movies, The Avengers. I was seeing it with Tony. Yeah. She spoke for about five minutes. She just stood up. She was about three rows from the back. Oh wow. She was witnessing. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to uh, the bottom of the first page. We're still one page deep. We're going to try to get done before 10, maybe, maybe 11. Uh, because, there is, because there is good news, let's, take a, uh, let's look at the bad news by answering a three-part question. So we already talked about looking at soil preparation versus modern evangelism. Uh, we're going to avoid the reaping mentality. We already talked about Matthew 13 and Luke 7, 47. Whoever is forgiven little loves little right if you plant it surface deep you you should expect it to die quickly if you don't pull the weeds if you don't examine it if you don't care for it if you don't prune it uh you should expect it to die and not bear fruit 
Uh, overcoming strongholds, which we're going to talk because uh, the verse is on the next page. And then light is more powerful than darkness. Truth triumphs when declared. First John, or John 1, 4-5, right? Life in this, that you know, the, the word is the life of men and the life uh, I'm not, is the light and the is it life or light? But the first one is life. Is the life of man? The, lo, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or overpowered it. Right? Like we are. You are a city set on a hill. You are the light. Jesus says, "I am the light." Right? All these things. Uh, we can. We will overcome all darkness, all evil by proclamation of the light. You can't, like, if people are blind and blame-shifting, excuse-making, there's no bad news, they can never come out of darkness. So, you know, just like uh, I have, so uh, I live in a room that has one window, and that window goes out, and there's a deck over it. It's very, very dark in my room. It's very dark until about noon (laughs) or something if I keep the blinds open. Uh, so when I, I put a, on my headboard, I put a strip of LED lights. So when I wake up at like whatever time I wake up, uh, <laughs> that's not up for discussion. <laughs> uh, uh, you can tell me how sinful I am later. Um, you know, it's very dark in my room. So I turn this strip of LED lights on, but I'm always like, man, this really sucks. And I close my eyes, but the light, I could still know the lights on. And it's kind of painful, and I really wish I could just like go back to bed, but I kind of force myself to keep the lights on, so I'll eventually wake up and get out of bed. Uh, but like the light is like when you're first waking up, when you're first like seeing light coming out of a cave, uh, it's very painful. Like it's painful to have like you're like ah oh, this sucks. Like you walk out in like high noon and there's no clouds, even though you had like lights on in your house, you walk out into a brighter light. And it's still like, oh man, like this kind of sucks. Or coming out of a movie theater or something, right? So, like, it's going to hurt. But we have to be like, all right, flipping over to the next page. Uh, page, no, we're on the back of the, set, the first page, page two. Oh, really? The very top, yeah. No, heck no. So, Roman numeral three are concepts. Like alienation from God, the Ten Commandments, and sin necessary. That's the three-part question. So, uh, Jonathan, since you came in and you jumped in the spot of the next reader, uh, can you actually... So this has 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, but only 4 through 5 are on the pa- is on the paper. Uh, can you open up, if you got a Bible with you, or on your phone? Okay. Uh, who's got a Bible? There you go, Dan's got it. 10, 3 through 5. He's got it on the phone. Okay. You may be 3 through 5, right? Yes, sir. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Yeah, so in our modern sense, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you say, take every thought captive to obey Christ? Think better. You Think. can do it. Think better, right? It's like my internal like uh, thoughts of lust. Well, I just gotta take that thought captive to obey Christ, right? Like that's kind of like our modern idea of like individualistic, my own ideas, my own uh, thoughts, which is true, right? Uh, so I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, yes, you do have to make every one of your individual thoughts obey Christ, 
But what's he saying in context? That we're not, like what we're doing as apostles, preaching the gospel, raising up churches, uh, and going out and preaching the gospel in lands that have never heard the gospel. Paul said he would not go to where a church or the gospel has already been preached. So he, we know because he said it, and it's in the scripture, that he was only going to unreached people groups, right? So they have no idea who Christ is. They might have heard, but no one's there planting churches and preaching the gospel to them, right? Uh, so he's saying we, uh, we, don't have, we don't wage with weapons of the flesh, but we have weapons of warfare, not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Right? That's like what the whole book of Galatians is. He's writing to a church he's established to say, like, who's bewitched you? Someone's put, like, a stronghold of a mental argument that you there's something else besides Christ. You need circumcision and Christ to be saved. And that's heresy. That's a stronghold that will keep people apart from Christ. He was saying, if you accept circumcision... Christ is of no value to you. He is writing to the church and saying, if you accept this teaching and this doctrine, you're not Christians. In our modern sense, we'd say you're not saved. Right? Well, Paul, didn't you know that God loves me and offers a wonderful plan for my life? <laughs> no, he said, like, like, why don't you emasculate yourself? Why don't you cut the whole thing off if you accept circumcision? If you're going to cut off a little bit, why don't you cut off the whole thing? Right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's Paul. That's, is that, that's is, Paul. Is it defined as a eunuch? Uh, well, well, Paul is using an argument of, like, if you're going to cut off a little piece of your member, cut off the whole thing, you might as well, because it's useless, because uh, Christ is useless to you now. Well, Daniel and his uh, buddies were eunuchs. Yeah, sure. So he's not, Paul's not talking about becoming eunuchs in Galatians. He's talking about but they were it was like, a false they were gospel. Just, I thought it was they just kept themselves from women. They didn't actually yeah. cut their... So probably. I don't know. That's a whole different like side of the story. Yeah, so we're talking about heresy and, and mental arguments of like, somebody says, uh, well, I believe Allah is the only true God. Well, guess what? That's a mental stronghold that we, that's raised up, that we have weapons of warfare to wage up against to take that thought captive to obey Christ. Well, your truth is my truth, and my and my truth is my truth. Well, we have uh, we wage war against those mental strongholds and arguments, and we have weapons of warfare to take that thought captive to, towards Christ. Well, I don't need to be in the church, you know. I don't need a church. Well, we <laughs> we have weapons of warfare to be raised up against that stronghold to take that thought captive to Christ. So in context, that's more of what Paul's talking about, right? Although that individual idea of I've got lust or pride or whatever thought is in my head currently, uh, I need to take that thought captive. Yes, that's true. But when we go out, we have those same weapons of warfare that Paul used in unreached people groups in the first century uh, to establish churches and uh, raise up elders and do it quite effectively. Paul is pretty effective. Uh, you know, and uh, he's Jesus' model that he set forth. Uh, so, to take those thoughts to obey Christ, right? So, try to think, you know, how the world is influencing, just in when we looked at Galatians, how the modern culture was influencing, the Judaizers were influencing uh, the churches in uh, Galatia, uh, and what Paul wrote to him. He, like, had no reserves 
Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Not like, grace and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> like every other, every other epistle. He gets right to the point. He's like, oh my God, you guys are like separating yourself from Christ. This is a damnable heresy and you need to repent and return to the way of truth because you guys are outside of Christ and or you're going there. And it's that scary. Uh, so... He was on fire for the Lord. He did it all. He had a list of things he suffered. He went to all the churches. He wrote the most <coughs> epistles. Yeah. That's why uh, God decided to... God raised him up and used him. All right, so point A is the concept of alienation from God really necessary. So what is God really like? So in all that, like, uh, hopefully, uh, because we're all studious members, on fire for the Lord, uh, know how much the Word of God is implemented and needs to be implemented in evangelism to hold the foundations of truth. Uh, and because I gave it to you at the beginning and asked you to, uh, the 54 or whatever scripture verses to memorize the simple short list um, for evangelism. Uh, hopefully, you guys remember like the seven like concepts of fallen sinful men. Of like, you know, one of those is separated from God, and another one is independent and rebellious. And excuse me, what those scripture verses are, right? Because that would be like imperative for like a gospel conversation. But even like knowing the concepts of like, you know, you're separated from God and what does that mean? And being able to, you know, go out and show the gospel and present that in a clear and bold fashion is something we should be regularly seeking to do, practicing to do, and praying for. All right? So is the concept of alienation from God necessary? Uh, so the idea is what is God actually like? So we're actually going to fly through this page. Uh, because we have all the scripture verses and we've been asked to memorize them and we know uh, to some degree and over half the people here have been through a systematic theology class. But uh, there's certain set of assumptions that people are going to have based on their worldview on what God is like. So let's just uh, answer, let's do this kind of in a group format. What's the basic assumption or what could be a basic assumption of what God is like of someone who says, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to be part of a church or go to a church. What's the basic assumption about God's character and what he's like? That he doesn't care about community. It's not that big of a deal. He loves me no matter what I do. He loves me no matter what I do. Uh, that he's not calling me to a community. That's not part of who God is. That's not one of his major ideas. He loves me and accepts me. Also, that your purpose is not tied to his kingdom. He's not king. Yeah, almost. I mean, would you? Uh, yeah, I'd say that in a, maybe a way of if it's saying the same thing of like that. He doesn't have. He doesn't even have a specific purpose for his people that they would be unified and doing together. Mm -hmm. That they could. It's like it's very individualistic. Based off of what he's uh, Daniel said, you would you won't have any sense of like accountability at all. Yeah, like God doesn't want me to walk in the light with like other Christian brothers and sisters. Maybe he's not putting God first so he'll never get ahead in life. Yeah. So, you know, like there's so there's basic assumptions that come along with people's responses. So when we're out sharing the gospel, it's good because we'll do this in the workshops to some degree, but really what it's going to take is getting out there and doing it and practicing and thinking about it beforehand is like, 
what would be the basic assumption of someone of what God is like for objections like I don't need to go to church or the church hurt me uh, or you know any belief uh, God just wants you to believe the same God is the God of Allah God of Islam the God of Christianity and Judaism or any God like what would be the basic assumptions about the nature and character of God based on different beliefs and responses that people give so uh, let's talk about so that that goes off into a million streams that you have to think about and decide for and pray about and read scripture but uh, for now let's talk about what the Bible says because <laughs> that's what we have we can't go off into a million theoretical conversations right right now we'll do that on Thursday <laughs> uh, so number one uh, the fact is that God exists in the Bible existence of God is never argued always asserted uh, wow, nobody new came in. So, Daniel, <laughs> can you can we have you read? Uh, read Psalm fourteen one a Psalm uh, nine nineteen one, and then John Luke. Can you look up Romans one eighteen through twenty? Psalm fourteen one a. The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." Psalm yeah. Nineteen one. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim. So, uh, we'll have John Luke explain these two verses uh, by reading Romans 1, 18 through 20, here in a second. But, what's a biblical fool? Is that an idiot, or what is that? person who denies the existence of God. Yeah, a fool in Scripture is just someone who denies the existence, the reality, and the commandments of God. Right? It doesn't mean that they're stupid. There's many scientists who are way smarter than me who are fools. There's many uh, other... I don't know where I was going with that. Anyways, I was going to try to flip it, but I couldn't think of it. But anyways... You're trying to stereotype the class of people that were uneducated just out here. Yeah, but I didn't want to do that. (laughs) Thanks. All right, so so John Luke, uh, can you read that Romans 1, 18 through 20, please? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So who knows that God exists? Every person on the entire, like even if they've never, what about the unreached people groups in some third world country that have never had missionaries come in and never heard a gospel presentation? Right, because what is evident and what has been clearly shown to them through creation and the divine power, like what Psalm 19.1 said, uh, is that they know the eternal creator to some degree. Now, what do they need to be saved? Faith and repentance. Yeah, someone to come preach the gospel to them of faith and repentance, (laughs) right? Of of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so... uh, So... 
there's different ways to handle, you know, when we're out evangelizing, but we don't ever like, you know, answer the fool according to his folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes of making an assumption or going off of an argument if God didn't exist. Because that's not truth, that's not reality, and that's not even a possibility. There's no such reality that could ever exist. We can't exist unless God. <laughs> so, and we stand on that. Like, well, I would never give an atheist or something a leg to work on of saying, you know, that God doesn't exist and you can't know. It's like, well, you know that God exists. Scripture says that. Uh, and you can show, lovingly show them uh, how that wouldn't even make any sense. That would be like the most foolish thing, contradictory, uh, of if that were true, then answer the cool according to his folly, uh, folly, uh, lest he be wise in his own. I show him how foolishness it is because if he believes this, this would be the case. If there is no God, how can we exist? That doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, so. Let's move on to the nature of God. So what does Scripture say uh, who God is? So the nature of God, what is God like? So somebody answer me. What is God like? Any systematic theology graduates here? Any R.C. Sproul lecture listeners? What is God like? Tell me something God's like. Not just his characteristics and attributes. Tell me something God's like. God's like that? Wrong. Anybody else? What is God like? Is he like a three-leaf clover? No. God is not like anything else. There is nothing... Yeah. You could never say that God is like something else. That's wrong verbiage at the very least. Right? So I put... So we're going to look at the incommunicable and the communicable attributes which are the ones that we can have and the ones that we cannot, or the one, the incommunicable, the ones that we cannot have, and the communicable is the ones we can have. But I put holy under both of those because there's a little bit of a debate. But I wanted to make the point that, like, first and foremost, what's the only attribute of God that is listed, like, three times in a row in Scripture of who God is? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So what is Holy. Because we need to be able to present. Set apart. Yeah. Uh, set apart for a specific purpose, sacred set apartness, which apparently is a real word according to the Blue Letter Bible. Uh, and salt set, or I'm sorry, set apartness and separateness. Uh, so both Revelation 4 8 and Isaiah 6 3 uh, are different creatures singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is nothing like God. God is not like anything else. He is so far above and beyond and perfect that he cannot be compared to anything else. Other things could shadow and mimic part of his attributes, but he's so far above and beyond and comprehensible that like uh, and beyond comprehension that we couldn't even obtain to think, our minds can't even process what he is like. Does that make sense? If you said no, I'd understand. Because <laughs> I just told you, you can't think about it. <laughs> uh, so, when we're going out sharing the gospel, is that the God we're presenting? It should be, right? So, we need to keep it mindful. Is Are we presenting 
the holy, holy, holy. It doesn't say God is loving, loving, loving. God is wrathful, wrathful, wrathful. God is patient, patient, patient. Those are subsequent aspects of his holiness. That is the highest attribute that I think I see in Scripture, that the only one that's mentioned uh, in any sense over and over and over and three times in a row specifically, right? To make a point of like, God is so far above and beyond and outside of creation and nothing like accurately portrays God and mimics him perfectly and he is not like anything else, right? But we do see shadows, as Daniel was saying, we do see shadows of various character aspects, uh, and which I think... You know, metaphors and, and similes and word pictures are very helpful in explaining those things. Like, I understand uh, that using a three-leaf clover to explain the Trinity is modalism, <laughs> uh, but it does. So I wouldn't use that to explain the wholeness of God's Trinitarian aspect, but I would use that just as. Uh, St. Patrick used it and converted an entire nation, uh, used it to explain an aspect of his Trinitarianness, right? I wouldn't completely say that God is like an egg, three parts of one whole, but I personally and other, even people in the church would have a, would not agree with me here, would not use that. Right, because it's too much. They could say it leans too much in not showing the eternal mystery of the Trinity, but I don't. I personally don't mind using it to help explain a small aspect of one characteristic mm-hmm. or attribute of God. Right. Yeah. So there's, in a small sense, creation has been given to explain pieces and shadows that portray God's character and, and personhood. Just like an earthly father somehow, in some way, mimics our eternal father, or should. Right, as a shadow of unconditional love and acceptance and bringing a son forth and you know choosing to love and, and acceptance and we have obedience towards him and he raises us up and releases us. And all these things are aspects, but it's not perfect. It's not even close. Right? Okay, so that's holiness. Uh, Trinity. Uh, you know, so other people's... So try to understand this all with a backdrop of what other people, people already have an assumption of who God is and what he is and what he's like, or or they might not say he, they might say it, they might say, what are you talking about? All right, so Trinity, God is a triunity, three persons in one being. Um, and uh, when you figure out that eternal mystery, tell me, but we should be able to present that in a clear fashion. Right? So if you can't, think about it. If you need help, talk to somebody about it. Uh, Then his omnis, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, eternal, immutable, self-sufficient. So all of those attributes, uh, as we're not just sharing the gospel door-to-door, but as we follow up with people that God is drawing in, being able to relay and show them the character of God and what he is like, and how do we explain that in a clear fashion. Uh, He's creator. He's in control. Uh, The potter metaphor. Um, So, you know, we've got those verses. We've got them listed on the scripture memory sheet. Right? The very first verse of the Bible is, In the beginning, God created 
that means he created everything. What, so what are the, what's the basic assumption or what are some basic assumptions? Uh, you can tell me scripture examples if you want of if God created everything, mm -hmm. what's the assumption behind that? From a biblical perspective. Go ahead, Teresa. He's Yeah, he's outside of those, which means he's not changed by those. He's immutable. Uh, the circumstances don't change him. He changes the, the circumstances. John Luke? Do you have something? Dan? So, he rules. He rules. He's in control. He we have uh, to like, follow his rule. That means we, we're, if he implements something in his creation, we have to follow it and obey it, right? Uh, what's the example I'll just throw out in, I can't remember what I, what Romans 9 is referencing, but what I, what scripture in Isaiah, but all over, uh, scripture, there's a, there's an image and a metaphor of, of something. He is the potter. We are the clay. He can make vessels for destruction and wrath if he chooses and pleases. And he can choose and please as his will and his desires to make those vessels of wrath and destruction into vessels of glory and mercy. He's in control. He chooses. It's not our choice. Our choice is his choice. <laughs> right? He owns us. Psalm 24, 1. Who has it memorized? Just shout it out. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it. He owns every person. He owns the person who we're going to interrupt their dinner, knock on their door, and say, "I would like to take a minute. I'd like to talk to you uh, about the Christian faith." He owns their time. He owns their mind. He owns their will and emotions. He owns the person, their family, their career, their money, their job. All of it belongs to the Lord because He created it. It's not theirs, no matter how much they think it is. You know how much you think it's yours, it's not. <laughs> and that's bad news. Why is that bad news? Because it means we've been wasting. Yeah, it means we're, we've been wasting our entire lives. It means they're bad stewards. It means uh, that they were created for a purpose, that God owns them, that they're supposed to glorify Him, and they're not. They're broke. They're vessels of wrath. And his wrath will abide if they continue. Right? So it's not... So <laughs> all of this is bad news. <laughs> right? Uh, so that now we get to judge, like, you know, what Sam was saying. If he's the creator and he owns everything, uh, he also creates the laws. He also implements moral codes, civil codes, the ways people are supposed to handle them, how they're supposed to uh, operate in their jobs and in their families and in their hearts. Right? So uh, we shall have that Genesis 18.25 and Hebrews 9.27 uh, memorized. But So why is it, let's just state it openly, why is it bad that bad news, uh, we can't say it's bad that God is judge, it's good that it's God is judge, but why is it bad news for us? Because we're guilty. Because we're guilty, yeah. Because if you break the law, if he's uh, holy which is the first aspect, so set apart and perfect and righteous and just, and we break his law and he's the judge, there is a deemed punishment, right? So one of the arguments that I always bring up with 
Muslims is, how does God or how does Allah forgive your sins? And the answer, most of the time is, he just forgets it. Okay, is he then just? No, he's not a good judge. Because he's not punishing sins. He just forgets about it. He's a pushover. <laughs> right? And he doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about uh, obedience and, and the ideas behind that. Because he just forgets it. I mean, even in like our own judicial system, like we lock people up because we like we lock a murderer up because we value life. And because of that, like we Thank put you. them away because they're bad people. Like, yeah, there has to be consequences, you know. Yeah, uh, like everybody, like if you, you know, I like to bring this out in evangelism when I'm talking with people. Uh, like everybody, no matter what the situation is, if there's a wrongdoing, like we see this in nature. Thank you. Somebody has to absorb it, right? So, uh, if Lily, what's that? Use the example of uh, the original sin. Oh yeah. Well, hold on. Like even in like human examples, like if Lily, my three-year-old daughter, does something bad, uh, you know, if she uh, breaks a window, breaks a window, or uh, let's get away from the examples we mostly know. Of breaking a window. Let's say uh, she she calls me. Uh, uh, she says, "Dad, I don't love you," uh, or something. You know, something like very offensive. I have to absorb the punishment, right? Because there, you know, let's just say she disobeys, right, in some form or fashion. There is a due punishment. In order for that punishment to be absolved, somebody has to absorb it, right? In my case, I could choose to discipline her or not, but I have to absorb, right, that punishment. That doesn't mean I spank myself. <laughs> That'd be weird, <laughs> inappropriate. Uh, but I have to, I have to absorb uh, the punishment of anger, retaliation, right. So somebody always pays, no matter what. There's always a consequence. So it's bad news that God is judge is because he's holy and he's perfect. Uh, so what about the communicable attributes, the moral qualities that we can have in some degree? Uh, perfect in holiness, righteousness, and goodness. You know, we are called in Leviticus 19.2 uh, that we shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy, for I am holy, he says. Uh, we, should, we should have, you know, all of these memorized, right? Because they're on the sheet. Uh, gracious, merciful, loving, you know, so, you know, in the ideas of who God is and what he is like or to other people, it or she or something is like the ultimate cause. Uh, so this is where every other like so we talked about how every other worldview and religion flips it upside down or gets it wrong. And there is nothing even theoretically close to the biblical view. Right. So loving and merciful is is one and pers personal and Specifically in personal. So, uh, what about so? Let's let's just pick on Muslims for a minute. Um, how does uh, does anybody know anything about Islam? A little bit. So, how does uh, is Allah portrayed to as close, or how close is He in Islam? Very distant. Very distant. Why? 
or do you, or go into maybe some reasons, or can you just expound on that a little bit more? Um, they had no direct access to connected from him because mm-hmm. um, he's over here. Because here, right. like he would never like actually come in and partake in his creation. Yes. Right. So, uh, yeah. So and so if we're talking to Muslims and they say, "Oh yeah, Allah is loving," like their idea of loving is a distant father. They say Allah, I think they even use the verbiage of Allah is like our father or something. Uh, so their idea is a distant father who is abstract and you can't personally connect with him and he doesn't love you enough to come down and be with you. Although they might point to, I was just doing some research, I don't know if I kept it up. Uh, uh, there are saying, you know, there are surahs or chapters in the, uh, I can't remember if this is the Quran or the Hadith, that say that you can pray and that God will hear your prayers and has an indication of closeness, but it's not like what we call closeness and hear our prayers. We're talking about like God dwells in the midst of his people in Christianity, in the biblical worldview. He is here with us. We are now temples of the living God, and he is more personable than any of us can even abstractly think. Right? So is that the view as we go out and evangelize that we're portraying and knowing that when we're talking to anybody from that's not from a biblical worldview is thinking of an abstract love, mercy, and personalness, right? Uh, any other religion is the same is the same way. It's far off and distant. So, but they would say merciful, close. That Allah is close. There's even a famous saying uh, from a a Muslim that's currently attributed Christians absorbed it of like God's love is better than a thousand something something I don't know I can't remember what it was probably a bad example to bring up but so even if we're like so their ideas of God and who he is like is so far like outside of being personal and loving and merciful that we need to like know how to take that thought captive and saying like I don't know if you like it might be helpful to compare to like what the biblical God is and what the implications are that are. You'll have to kind of just use wisdom and discernment and be moved by the spirit in the moment. Uh, and if you're talking to a Muslim or, but you, but to understand like, are we portraying the God, the Christ who is like not on any need of his own, but only a want and love for himself and his creation would be incarnate in human nature and body to redeem a people that would praise him and live with them and even give him his own spirit to help them along and to move them and to guide them to dwell with them that's the personalness that we need to portray right so don't trust people uh with their definitions if they're not like radical into scripture uh then number three father right just think about you know just in that concept of if Islam, you know, you all get a definition of what a father is like from something or created from something and everybody's the same way, uh, whether it's their own father, whether it's uh, modern psychological teachings or whether it's Allah or whether it's Buddha or uh, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> like everybody creates an idea of what a father is, but the ultimate father and, and model and pattern and the true father is found in scripture, right? So, 
that second page, we're almost done. That second page is going a lot faster, right? And it's only 916. Uh, all right, number three. Is the concept of the judgment of God really necessary? Does God consign people to hell? Uh, we already read Romans 1.18, so let's move on to page three. Uh, we should know Hebrews 9.27, and I added 2 Corinthians uh, 5.10, uh, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give each one what is due in the body, whether good or bad. Right? So... Um, who sits before the judgment seat of Christ? Everyone. Everyone. Who gets judged when they die? Everyone. Wait a minute, what about Christians? They get judged too. Right? So, all really does mean all, right? All men uh, are consigned to death and all men will be judged, right? Uh, so, cause I've heard, you know, I remember just growing up inside the church of saying, you know, well, just those people who are outside of Christ die and get judged. Well, that's not true biblically. <laughs> All people get judged, whether good or bad, whether those things that they've done in the body or in faith and new birth it, through the spirit for Christ and his kingdom to honor and glorify God or not. Remember what we said about dead works, dead works are any works based on your own human uh, will and volition outside of faith in Christ, right? And we should repent of them. Uh, so Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone in the Bible. Imagine that. Uh, can anybody just quickly paraphrase Luke 16, 19 through 31 on Lazar the rich man and Lazarus and the great chasm? Melody, can you do it? You look like you can. Just paraphrase. Just um, give us some yeah, things. Sure. So, tell Abraham or somebody would um, give him uh, just a little drop of water. He asked Abraham directly. The space. Yeah, the chasm is too large that one can pass from one side to the other. Right? One's a place of torment. One's a place, place of paradise. Right? One's good. One's bad. Right? He uses, like, I don't really want to be in a place where I'm asking uh, some guy that was, like, most likely homeless and not well bathed to dip his finger in water and give me a drop. I don't even want to lick my own fingers. Right? If I ever get to a place of so much torment that I'm asking somebody else to do that, that's pretty bad. Right? <laughs> That's how thirsty he was, right? It gets a, and, and that's just like on my fleshly human level of germs and, and dirt. Uh, so, right? So what about, uh, let's read, since we got uh, somebody new who jumped in the spot. <laughs> we got to John Luke. We're going to go back. Uh, Christiana, can you read Mark 9, 42 through 48? Mark 9, 42 through 48. Just We still got a few hours. It's only 9:21. Only we only got to go to the bottom of this page and then then wrap it up. Mark 9 verses 42 through 48 please. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Yeah. So if the worm doesn't die, do you think that the common notion of annihilationism, that hell is just a place where you're... Uh, tormented for a time and then your soul dies and you cease to exist. If the worm doesn't die, do you think you do? That's bogus. That's bogus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that's bologna. <laughs> so those are like, so these are like real things that Jesus talked about. He talked about like as in warnings of impending judgment for those who are unrepentant, who do not experience the new birth, right? Who do not submit their lives and obey Christ, right? So part of the gospel is uh, brings up in Romans chapter 1 and the last verse in 16, last chapter in 16 is those who obey the gospel or the obedience of faith, right? Like the obedience is a necessary uh, outcome of the gospel, of preaching the gospel, of getting new life in Christ. Uh, you know, and Christ himself talked about hell more than anybody else. It's a very real possibility, it's a very real reality. And it's something that we should also be proclaiming. Amen. And we need to have uh, things, you know, to, you know, so we're on the workshops, we're going to talk about like every other worldview from without that's not Christianity and how to defend the Christian truths. And then we're going to talk about the other half, which is just as big, how to talk to people who claim to be Christians but have wrong ideas. They're not submitted to the obedience of Christ. And one of those is, that they don't believe in hell because it's a growing idea. And the idea of annihilationism is that hell isn't an eternal state of separation and torment apart from Christ, that you uh, are in the judgment and then those souls that are consigned to hell are burned, punished, and then cease to exist, that there is no eternal punishment. So we have to be able to, uh, and we be equipped with uh, the tools to warfare against those lofty arguments against the knowledge of Christ, right? Uh, and we will. So, don't stop sinning so that guilt can never be punished because it always exponentially grows. Yeah, it has to be eternal, uh, logically. All right, so point B let's get out of, let's get out of hell here. <laughs> uh, so uh, are the Ten Commandments really necessary? Why are they important? Uh, are there moral absolutes? The Ten Commandments from Moses to Jesus and Paul. So, are there moral absolutes? Yes. How do we know? The Bible tells us, Bible tells us so. That's the we should change the song to. There are moral absolutes. This I know. What's that? Yeah, if anyone, uh, uh, if there's no absolutes, then there would be no moral absolutes. And since there are absolutes, there inevitably will be moral absolutes, right? So something we'll bring up in the workshops more clearly and how to deal with this is there are moral absolutes 
And people will tell you that there are not, but then they live their life and they speak in a way that there are. So if someone says, like, I don't believe in, says something that indicates that they don't believe in moral absolutes, and then they judge something to be good or bad or right or wrong, you have to be able to listen and discern and say, wait a minute, you just said there's no absolutes on morality, but you just said something was bad, like rape or murder, but your worldview says that that's not true, so is rape bad? Is murder bad? Um, again, we'll go back to the example. We talked to a Mormon, uh, Byron Jane and I talked to a Mormon on Friday night, um, a somewhat practicing member of the LDS church, and though he's not like super committed to doctrine, uh, we asked him the question is, um, based on personal revelation, because it's a big thing in Mormonism, of if God reveals something to you, just like he did Joseph Smith, then that's what's true, because God's already foundation and what he's already revealed in Scripture is not enough, right? So we asked him the question, if someone felt like they got personal revelation from God to go kill somebody, is that okay? And he had a really hard time answering that. Is killing people okay? No. No. <laughs> no, like it's that it's really that easy. But look at the foolishness apart from the fear of God. Look how foolish, like like and our, our job is to help people open their eyes. Help uh, you know, we're well I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. That's somewhat true. We're tools for God for them to get their eyes opened, right? Yeah. So he could always the whole that if they didn't believe in moral absolutes. Right. The Holocaust was absolutely wrong. <laughs> right? So, like, we'll get into, if there's no, like, if, if it's not absolute, as in this is always wrong all the time in every circumstance, you know, like, so killing, is killing wrong? Yes. yes. No, it's not. <laughs> killing is not morally wrong. Exodus 20 talks about if there's a home invasion and you're defending yourself... Or you can kill animals for, for eating, right? But murder is wrong, right? So people will try to trick you up and get you to, like, you know, uh, everyone who isn't a son of God is a son of the devil. And what does the devil do? Deceive, right? Part of his tactic is deceive. So if you don't know healthy doctrine and how to present the gospel clearly and how to, uh, yeah, father of lies, um, then... Like, this is why you have to actually start with First Peter 3.15 that says, Sanctify Christ in your heart as holy, or as Lord or something. Uh, that's where it starts. It doesn't start with be prepared. It starts with Christ is Lord, his law rules, he is right. This is our foundation for truth, knowledge, wisdom, experiencing Christ and knowing him, and everything else is uh, a lie and a deception. So uh, people might trigger you and say, well, it says, you know, you, like, thou shalt not kill. I was like, well, that's not what it says. You have to know your scripture. It doesn't say don't kill. And there's, you read just, you know, that's Exodus 20, thou shalt not murder, and it explains what murder is. So there's clear standards that God outlines in his scripture of what those things mean. He tells you what thou shalt not murder means. He tells you what thou shalt not commit adultery means. He tells you what don't bear false witness means. It's not thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. <laughs> there could be one. 
uh, although lying would be most lies are <laughs> bearing false witness, right? So the fact is there are, uh, so I'm just going to, for the sake of time, uh, I'm just going to kind of quote uh, these Bible verses I put in there. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Actually, let's read them. Where are we at? Uh, Jane, can you read Matthew 5, 17 through 20? And then Byron, can you read Psalm 119, 89? And then uh, Joshua, can you read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, please? And whenever you guys got them, shout them out. <coughs> to abolish the law of the prophets, I have not come to heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, so we're going to get after this, the purpose uh, of the Ten Commandments or the laws, but like that should be part of our gospel presentations as we're talking to people initially and discipling them, right, and bringing them to Christ, is like, this is the moral standard and code. This is God's law. Christ himself said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And that anybody that relaxes, even the least of them, <laughs> right? But whoever teaches them uh, will be great in the kingdom of God. All right, Byron, one nine, Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever? <laughs> what? But we're in the New Testament, guys. Forever for like a couple hundred years or a thousand years, and then we'll just abolish it? No, forever, your word is not just here on the earth, but settled in heaven forever, for all eternity, in all states. Uh, now, there's a debate, I believe, that the Ten Commandments, the law of God, was eternal from before creation and continues after Christ's second coming. That's my position. There are people that would believe that the law, you know, because this is the law, came and increased because of sin. But I believe that that law always existed. It just wasn't implemented until people fleshed it out. But, uh, you know, those are things we should, you so should have firmly settled. What sins could the um, people around know have been guilty of? Them right, that's a good point. Uh, and how could you know it says like Joseph and Abraham and all these people obeyed all the law before the law was there? Yeah. All right, Joshua, uh, Isaiah forty verse eight. This is what I'm super proud because Lily's got it memorized now. <laughs> Just last week. <laughs> hey, no, no clapping. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Joshua. The grass withers, flowers fade. The word of our God remains forever. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Yeah. So that's good. So the, so the word of the Lord remains forever or endures forever or is fixed forever. Forever? But not the Ten Commandments. Because that wasn't like his word. Right? Like, yeah, the Ten Commandments are the word, and it remains, it endures, it is fixed forever, it remains, right? So, are the Ten Commandments still valid today? Yes. Absolutely. Are there moral absolutes? Yes. We can't, Yeah, so by the way, you still can't murder people. We support them, but it's like a mirror you can look back on. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to get into the, the purpose of them. Uh, but, so you know, and this is stuff that everybody should know, 
who's been a Christian more than a year or something, uh, should study and you know, have settled, especially if you go out, because those are going to be one of the things to be able to do in evangelism, which is very, I, I feel like is the hardest part, is you have to be ready to answer any question, any abstract or crazy question that people have, and you've never met these people before. And uh, to do it clearly and know scripture enough to at least give some semblance of an answer and not just a whole bunch of, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, that's for dirty. Uh, you know, because you have to be able to discern, like, is this question, whatever it is, uh, does that question and how they're asking it reflect the true nature of God as revealed in his scripture? So you might not be able to answer every specific question. I guarantee you nobody can or ever will be able to uh, unless they're moved by the Spirit. Uh, you know? So, but you can easily discern and move by the Spirit of like, what is this, what is the factor behind this? And I can't off the top of my head think of any examples, but there's ones like, uh, should I cut off my hand? Jesus said, Whoever lusts, you know, it's better for them to cut off their hand than to enter. Should I, like Jesus was advocating that I cut off my hand. I'm like, well, uh, I don't think so. Or else we'd all have no hands. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's not within, I might, you know, not be able to like explain the exact question. But you could say it's not in the nature of God for self-mutilation. That's not the purpose because what he wants is someone that's wholly dedicated and set apart to honoring God and his moral code, and that goes in, because that's in Matthew 5, and we're going to look at it, as one of the case laws of do not commit adultery, that he's making the point of, like, it's the depths of your heart that you're not just committing adultery in your body, but you're committing adultery in your heart. Like, you, what you need is a heart circumcision. You need to not cut off your hands. You need to get your heart cut, right? So you can answer, you might not be able to answer the question, like, exactly the way that they're wanting you to answer, but you can examine how they're asking and what they're looking for and where their heart and ideas of the nature of God is to answer that accurately, right? And lead them towards like, you're a sinner. <laughs> you need a heart transplant. You have a heart of stone. Even that way of thinking is sinful. <laughs> Don't cut your hands off, <laughs> please. Uh, <laughs> that's not what we're telling you, uh, right? So, uh, so case laws, which explain what like... Uh, what the moral absolutes are. So don't commit adultery, or I'm sorry, don't murder. Matthew 5, 21 through 22 says whoever, like a fool who, uh, uh, someone who says his brother is an empty header, a raka is liable to the hell of fire. Whoever uh, uh, is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. So there's all types of case laws like Leviticus 24, 17, and that says whoever sheds blood, man's blood, will his blood be shed. So even in the Old Testament, he's instituting, if you murder, you're going to be murdered. We're going to kill, we're not going to murder you because it wouldn't be murder. It would be a, a justice and be right and loving to you and to the community around you uh, to, we're going to put you to death. That is the sentence of and how serious it is, how much God uh, honors the image of God that he's deposited into other people that you can't murder them. And if you do, you're going to be sentenced to death. Uh, so don't commit adultery. Uh, Leviticus 20, 10 through 21 is all types of uh, forms of adultery. And Leviticus 
there's more, uh, maybe Leviticus 18 or something, Deuteronomy 18, I can't remember. Uh, but all about like, it says, if you commit adultery, you're going to be stoned and put to death. Uh, but also then lists other kinds of adultery, bestiality, other kinds of like promiscuity, like all these other kinds of, of adultery and their punishments and what the judgments would be. And Jesus in this case law is in the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 5 says, if you even look at a person, woman lustfully, if a man even lusts after a woman in his heart, he's already committed adultery. Because that's how deep God's moral law and code goes. Right? Remember how we started? It's not, we're not trying to change the environment. That's why the penal, the penitentiary system doesn't work. Prisons don't change people. That's why God didn't use them. <laughs> Either sends them to death or payment. Right? Both of those seem to work. <laughs> uh, especially the death one. Uh, right? So, um, like, we're not trying to reform people's characters. We're trying to, like, get them new lives, new hearts in Christ. The point is, like, when you explain people the moral code that, like, they have broken... Uh, well, let's just look at it from this way. Um, if you've broken, let's say if you broke the uh, don't murder, what other commandments have you broken? <laughs> have you committed adultery <laughs> by murdering? I don't think so. The first five. The first five. Uh, How so? So explain, uh, explain a little bit. How are you not honoring the Sabbath day? <laughs> so I would say you're at least breaking two commandments every time you break one, except for the first commandment. So every commandment is a, is a breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. If you murder, you have, uh, number one, to have no other gods before me or besides me is saying that I will be lovingly obedient and submissive to you so everything subsequent would follow, right? Like, so if you murder, uh, because he said don't murder, you created a, another God, and there's another God you've created in your heart or in your life that is disobedient to him. So anytime, I'd say the very least, you're breaking two commandments every time you break commandments two through ten. Yeah, so... Yeah, so we could uh, bring that out in evangelism and how to explain that. Because uh, uh, the argument that most people are going to have is like, well, God's not very loving. He seems very wrathful. Because we're, we're talking about the bad news, and this is very bad news. Uh, we all deserve death and punishment and judgment so far. Uh, so, the because the what's the summary of the law, as Daniel said? Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Matthew twenty two thirty four, Mark something, uh, Luke something. It's in there somewhere. I think it's on my arm. Did I put it? The verse Mark twelve thirty one. That's what it is. I had a, I had it tattooed on me, but I think it's stupid. Not the verse, but I think tattoos are stupid. Uh, so I I renounced them. Uh, that's just my own personal belief. I should cut off. <laughs> I thought, uh, I thought about getting I thought about getting them laser removed, but it costs too much. People on the podcast, it was a joke. Uh, 
So, like, is everything you do, every thought, every action, every motivation, like loving God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength? Are all your thoughts always pleasing and having what I call a positive presuppositional disposition uh, all the time? Are all of your actions the perfect? The answer is no, which means, which is bad news. You don't love God all the time. And if he is perfect, holy, just, you deserve punishment because you don't love God. You say you do, but you don't. And that's what we have to bring out in evangelism. You are liable to judgment. Uh, and he doesn't, like God does not just forget sins. I'm sorry, he doesn't love you and offer a great life for you, probably. Uh, probably. He might be, but... Uh, well, time will tell uh, as we preach the gospel to them if they hear it and receive it okay so what's the purpose of the Ten Commandments uh, or Paul on the purpose of the Ten Commandments so why do we bring this out uh, first and foremost it's a tutor to lead us to Christ uh, so we're at um, Bob can you read uh, just that whole section Galatians 3.24 2.21 and Romans 7 uh, actually, we'll get someone else because not all of that Romans 7 is on there. If you want to read those two Galatians. Yeah, and then, uh, Dan, can you read Romans 7, 7 through 13? Uh, there's only a couple of verses on the page, but I put quite a bit more in the context for, those, for that Romans. Galatians 3.24 The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a maybe misunderstanding. I don't know. How many people think you could obey the law perfectly? Not like you personally, but people can. Like in their mortal bodies, obey the law perfectly. Few people did that. I, I almost did that before when I was younger, so I obeyed it. <laughs> Honestly, truly, I, I almost obeyed the entire law. I thought I did. Okay, you thought you did. Uh, so I don't know anybody that has apart from Christ, but I do know that God didn't put it there as an impossible standard. So it's not that it's, oh, it's impossible and we throw it off. Or if we think it's impossible, we value it less, right? Or that could be a possibility. But you could obey the entire law. It is... Like, did God create us uh, unable to keep the law? Which is a question if we have, where's Zachary when you need him? Where's, where's Zachary Brooks when you need him? He's right there. He's uh, a little older. Let's, <laughs> let's phone a friend. You know, one of, but one of the questions is, uh, since uh, did God create us unable to keep the law? And the answer is, uh, no, but since the fall, uh, no mere human has been able to keep the law fully. So... And you also, it's good to establish what kind of capable there is. It's not physically impossible. It's just we're so hell-bent on not doing it that we can't. Yeah, hell-bent, that's good. If it was actually impossible, we wouldn't be culpable. Right. Yeah, if it was impossible, that's a good point. We wouldn't be culpable. But it is possible, right? But we don't have the capability because of original sin, our sin nature. Right? Which is, uh, all of this is, that word tutor is the ESV, the... Uh, NASB, or I'm sorry, tutor is the NASB. Uh, ESV says guardian. 
but the New King James says schoolmaster. So the idea is that the the uh, law, the Ten Commandments, the not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole of the Pentateuch of Moses, was our was guided, was a guide, was a tutor, was a schoolmaster to train us and lead us towards Christ. And it still is today, right? You have no hope because of your indwelling sin nature to ever become obedient to Christ. And not just obedient, but ever like, not just, so the law isn't just the moral absolutes and the moral code to keep it, but it also is the judgment against, right? So there's a moral absolute and there's a standard for what it means to be human and obey God, but then there's uh, absolute judgments against that when you break them, right? Yes. Civ civically uh, and eternally. Yes. <laughs> or we could say maybe spiritually or something, I don't know. Uh, so tutor is like a guardian, a person that was designed and designated for the children to be trained up, to learn, and be, to be guided, kind of like an apprenticeship. And that's what the law is. So if we forsake the law, the Ten Commandments, the moral code, the moral absolutes, and the judgments, therefore, uh, and you could say all the books of Moses, then, then like, how much harder is it going to be to bring people to to an actual, to actually bring people to Christ. It's going to be very, very hard if you don't tell them, or, or maybe how could they ever, uh, if they never know how bad it really is. What Christ are you bringing them to? So Dan, Romans 7, 7 through 13, please. Romans 7, 7 through 13, King James Version, working death in me by that which is good, that the sin by the commandment might become extremely sinful. Yeah. So the two things I just want to bring out in here is uh, verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's Paul, post Christ's ascension, talking about the commandments and the laws, still holy, righteous, and good. Amen. So are the Ten Commandments still applicable? Yes. Yes, by all means, right? Are they bad? No. no. <laughs> right? Because he says that's how he starts. So, are they absolute today, right? How could you know sin unless you know the law? You can't. So, what's your standard? So, one of the things we'll bring out in, on Thursdays in the workshops is everybody has a standard. Everybody, so people might say there's no, people might verbally say, I don't believe in moral absolutes, but they are that far deceived because they believe in moral absolutes. And they have, so to believe in anything morally, if you were to go higher, what's your standard? Right? So everybody is going to have a moral standard. And we're going to, like, as we evangelize, uh, you know, do this in, again, a, a truthful, loving, respectful, and gentle way. Show them that, like, you have a standard of morality, and what are you basing that off of? Because, in my experience, nine times out of ten, uh, it's not like some revelation from God or some scriptures that they think are authoritarian. It's they have become their own God deciding what's good and bad. Mm -hmm. They are the standard. How can they be wrong if they're the standard? Mm -hmm. They can't. <laughs> right? The standard is the standard. The standard can never be wrong because it's a standard. It's no longer a standard if it's wrong. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. If you can show them that their standard is arbitrary and inconsistent, that might help to open their eyes. Right? Uh, so... Some people, just like a given an example, um, again, we'll do more of this in the workshops, but like 
Some people's standards are, well, the law. We can't break the societal laws. What's the problem there? Right, but even more so, they contradict each other. If one nation says murdering Jews is bad, and one nation says murdering Jews is good, which one is right? Or are they both wrong? Wait, they can't both be wrong. Uh, and that's the example, right? So uh, you know, that's the example, because it's actually, I've talked to more than one person, and this is actually like a thing now. Uh, consensus views of reality that if there's enough people scientism. consenting not scientism well that's you know, that would be an offshoot yeah you're right uh, of, uh, enough people consent to something that is reality and some people go as far as like uh, if enough people believe in in a group together that this mountain can become a grape but that mountain can literally become a grape some people go that wild but more most of it's on a more level-headed way of thinking of like societies create norms and standards and the good the the cream rises to the top and that they rule the nations and yeah. and somehow murdering jews got in there and that nation but but uh but enough people consenting together form moral standards and stuff and that's just like that's super crazy um so uh, Paul says, how could I not know? How could I know coveting was wrong unless the law told me you shouldn't covet, right? So how are people going to know that they're utterly sinful and breaking God's moral standards and there's a judgment occurring and incurring against them unless we tell them? If they have a conscience, they're Well, some people have a conscience and don't care. Yeah. I think there's, so there's general I revelation. I'm just saying, yeah. Don't have right, that's why we... That's why we pray. Uh, that's why we pray that the word would speed ahead, as Paul did, uh, to convict of sin, to produce it. Uh, was uh, John whatever says the Holy Spirit to bring us about conviction, righteousness, and judgment, or something? Um, but the Holy Spirit needs to go ahead of us, uh, and like I can't help anybody gain conviction. My words might be anointed by the Holy Spirit if they're truthful with Scripture to help convict somebody. I can't. I need the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? I need the Word. Uh, I will never, no matter how much I talk to Josiah <laughs> about a specific topic, until the Lord intervenes. So those are things we should be praying that we talked about. But if we don't ever bring about things that would be convicting... Like, listen, you're on a path of separate, you're separated from God, you're living in hell, and when you die, you're going to end up there in an internal state. If we don't ever bring that out in a conversation, uh, then they'll never know. The Holy Spirit will never work on things that are not manifest, that are incarnate. Right? So, uh, and then, so, there is a moral code. Paul talks about it. How can we know it unless it was revealed to him uh, and known the standard for morality and judgment? And then he says... Uh, what was it? You know, the law, the law is perfect, righteous, and good. And he says, sin, the law came about to show that sin was utterly sinful. Uh, I'll email this to anybody who wants, or we can watch it. Uh, when I first got converted, there's a um, Christian metal band called For Today, 
and the singer is kind of a preacher. He doesn't preach in a church, but he does like speaking engagements. So uh, he does like uh, spoken word. And I listened to one of his free albums that he put out, and he talks about like you know sin is the only big issue. Is the only, sin isn't the isn't a small issue. Sin is the only issue. The deeper we understand ourselves and convey to others how bad sin is, to understanding that it's utterly sinful, like we're one step closer, like preaching uh, a gospel according to the Bible, right? To be able to reveal clearly and then like understand this mystery and portray it, that sin is utterly sinful. Like the biggest deal, you know, Isaiah fifty nine two is. Uh, you know, uh, your sins have made a separation between you and God so that he won't even hear your prayers. So even if you cry out to God, your sins are so far, are so mounted up against him that he won't even hear or honor your prayers. He is so far from you and it's separated you. You're hiding and rebellious to him and your sins are keeping him away. And that is the worst. And that means you're in hell. That means you're living there and when you die, you're going to stay there. Right? <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> I feel like the, the, the attitude's getting really depressing in here, right? But we need to be able to clearly portray like how bad sin is. Like it's it's so bad, right? So uh, number five, are the Ten Commandments really necessary? Yes, they are vital. The purpose of the Ten Commandments also include to open our eyes, each one of us, uh, which have been blinded by self righteousness, blame shifting, and excuse making, along with every other rationalization and self deception. So those are in direct contrast, like, you're culpable, you need to change, you need to repent, but those are you because you've done something. Blame shifting, rationalized excuse making, absolves any shame and guilt, makes you a victim, and you don't need to repent, you don't need to change because you're perfect and self-righteous, right? Uh, B, prepares, prepare our hard hearts which have become callous by the deceitfulness of our sin. Um... So we all make, uh, so rationalizing is the big one here. Like we get deceived in thinking that sin isn't utterly sinful. It's not the worst thing ever. It doesn't separate us from God because we have all sorts of other deceptions piled up that God will just forgive us. Uh, he loves us. He's got a wonderful plan for our lives. But uh, the fact is like the more we like rationalize, the more we get deceived that like sin isn't that bad. It was just one murder. I know people that have murdered three or four people. It's not that bad comparatively, but what's our what's our standard? Zero murdering zero people. Well, not just in murder. Yeah. <laughs> so was it James? What'd you say? God is our standard. He is holy, holy, holy. He his moral he does not break his moral code. His moral code comes out of his nature. Right? So God's never broken his moral laws. He's kept them perfect. Uh, and we are commanded to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, and the problem is, we're not perfect. And we need the law to open our eyes to see that, to show us that, like, it's not just, you know, not just like uh, you will heal it. Like, when we're out of evangelism, ask people if you get to a point in the conversation, like, what's the worst thing you've ever done? Like, I want to hear. Like, I'll tell, I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. <laughs> Uh, you know, and people will tell me, well, you know, I, I was addicted to cigarettes for 21 years and I, and I quit. I quit. I was like, wow, man, that's really bad. 
I'm glad, I'm glad you're on the right path. It sounds like the Lord is really with you. That's great. That has nothing one, uh, to do with sin. There's this one street preacher that I saw online that he doesn't like necessarily like, he doesn't like outright, you know, like say sins. Like he'll just like use the law just so you can, so the law says, you know, so like he'll ask you like, hey, have you ever like sown anything? You're like, yeah. Have you ever like, you know, like, mm -hmm. have you ever um, like, uh, you know, like bore false witness and so forth? And then like he uses the new, he says, well, according to the law, then you're like a liar and, yeah. and so forth. And uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, so even showing people that, like the law, so was like Jesus the, so let's just make this clear right, real quick. When Jesus says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, like, where did Jesus get that interpretation from? Was that a new revelation? Summarizing. No, he's not just summarizing, he's directly quoting from Deuteronomy 6, which comes right after Deuteronomy 5, which is where the Ten Commandments are. Uh, stated for the second time, <laughs> right? So God already said that you're supposed to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that everything you're supposed to do is out of a out of a heart of gratefulness, thankfulness, love, dedication to God in all ways from your innermost being. That's what the law was always. Right? So if we don't explain the law and the, that that's what you should be, and people are still wanting to be deceived by on the surface, we need to be able to take them deeper in the soil, right? So, and then C, merciful and loving, open our eyes to the bad news that we are in desperate need of, the good news of Christ the Savior, Redeemer, and Lord, and our ongoing need for His grace, right? Whoever, uh, uh, Luke seven forty seven. whoever has been forgiven little, loves little, right? So, we read a lot from Romans 7, uh, but I put Romans 7.24 on there for us to reference. Like what we're trying to get and what God, like we'll know when God's doing something, drawing people in, convicting them of sin, is when they say things like, you know, this won't happen in one meeting, but hopefully it'll start opening their eyes. Uh, in Romans 7.47, Paul says, Who will save me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. That's where we want people to, that's where we want by the grace of God, to get people to. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Everything I do is opposed to God. I am entrapped and enslaved to fleshly sinful desires. I am dead. I am wretched. Who will save me? <laughs> Tell me, please. And then we can give them the good news. I actually would say, uh, to, if we're discipling people on an ongoing evangelistic investigative Bible study is to keep hammering the bad news until they get to that point and then tell them the good news. <laughs> because if we go straight to the good news, what are we preparing them for? We're not preparing well, no, we're not we're preparing them to be shallow soil. We're pretty much, if we go straight to the good news, we're saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's, yeah, you're fine, right? Uh, so, like, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? I am entrapped. What I do, I will. I have one law in my mind, and I try to submit to it. And I know the moral law and standards and codes, but my body does something else. My flesh does something else. So Paul goes on to explain that we can, in our bodies, 
no longer submit to a law of sin and death, but through the Spirit, submit to the law of life in the Spirit. Right? That's the, I figure uh, Romans 7.24 is the transitioning verse in Paul's gospel presentation of Romans of the good news. It's all, it's mostly good news after that. Uh, from Romans 7 on, 7.24 on. So, uh, all right, look at this. We're coming up, we're landing the plane. Uh, it's only been approximately three hours. Um, is that right? Did we start? <laughs> Good. See? You guys still awake? You guys need more coffee? Yeah. Uh, we've only lost a couple people, so, but... But there was even even Jesus lost one. <laughs> All right. So the last point on here, C, uh, is an outdated concept like sin really necessary? Am I a good pu- person in human nature? So, uh, so what would I the whole idea of what we've been grooming everybody for in this Bible study is. Is sin an outdated concept? Is it really necessary? Heck yeah. That's what I'm saying. Heck yeah. Right? Yes. If there is no, if you don't confront people and show them how sinful they are, how they will never come to Christ. Is it outdated in our modern culture? Yeah. In the Bible? No. That's eternal. Uh, well, the concept of, of sin and obedience to God. Right? Am I a good person? The answer is no. Uh, so three ingredients in human nature, the ABCs of human identity. Number one, created in God's image, which means everybody has intrinsic value. Every person. So there is no other worldview or religion that ascribes value and dignity, thus respect, to every single human being, no matter what ethnicity, age, uh a belief system or anything else that because you're a human being Christianity biblical Christianity is the only worldview that ascribes value to every single human person Amen. right so Islam says if you're out of Islam you can rightfully be killed as a infidel, infidel right humanistic uh, atheism says that if you're of less value in the world for evolutionary goals, you're of less value and could be uh, as much as killed, right? Uh, what's the country right now that is trying to euthanize all children born with uh, autism? Is that Sweden? Does anybody know? Down syndrome. In Sweden, yeah. So they're saying in Sweden that people with Down syndrome have less value and that they deserve death, and that we should kill them in the womb. That is really happening. Well, they actually say that it's kind to the baby to not let them live because they wouldn't have a good life anyway. Yeah, that's I've heard arguments. That's the so yeah, so how far does it go? I've literally sat in a discussion with a very good friend of mine, uh, who's an atheist, who told me like, well, you know, people who are going to be born into poverty and not have good parents. It's better for them to die, and us for them. It's more gracious for us to kill them than it is for them to live in poverty. What? <laughs> like, are you serious? Like this? I've like so. These are real discussions, and that's the foolishness of this world. But 
if we can bring out and show people how foolish that is and how dark and, and like you're literally talking about like killing people because that's more merciful, not because of anything that they've done, but because of something else, right? That's outside of their control that we should kill them. Okay. Try to explain that one. Um, so it's understanding, like try to like, as we're talking to people and discipling, uh, does it, are they taking away value? Cause everybody lives as if they have value, right? So created for a noble purpose, a need for significance, a significance and a sense of justice. Everybody lives with these purposes in mind. Everybody is endowed by uh, the triune God themselves of a noble purpose. What is God that you are mindful of? I mean, you made him a little bit lower than the heavenly beings or of God himself and put him as the crown of creation and then put him over all of, uh, give him dominion over the fish of the birds and the air of the seas. Right? Fish of the birds of the air of the seas. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Whatever. Psalm uh, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, right? So, like, everybody has a noble purpose. And is that explained? The only one that makes sense is the biblical Christian worldview of that noble purpose and what that purpose is to uh, give God glory and to be known and know him know the eternal creator that is the ultimate purpose that god created all people for and everybody lives without that a mind word. everybody lives with that purpose uh how deceived uh they are depends on what they perceive their life purpose to be right and see fallen uh for historical every human being is fallen for a historical account of the fall of man see genesis 3 uh so seven aspects of fallen human nature. Let's get them because it's on the sheet. You guys are memorizing them because spiritually dead, separated from God. Shout them out because we all have them memorized. Unrighteous. Nope. This is fallen. Seven aspects of fallen man. Self-deceiving. Deceived. Independent or rebellious. Was slaves to sin already mentioned? Nope, slaves to sin. Got one more. It's the first one, the top one. Unrighteous. Right? Yeah, she said that. Oh, did we? Did I count it? If we missed Yeah, so unrighteous. Oh, hiding from God. We missed hiding from God. Unrighteous, hiding from God, deceived. Uh, separated from God, <coughs> right? Slaves to sin, independent and rebel or rebellious, and spiritually dead. So that is every human being in our fallen nature, right? So number three, why does it matter to uh, why does it matter to, st the, to study of history? That sounds weird. Religion, political theory, ethics, and all humanity. So why would it why would it benefit us to study human history? Yeah, you can see it all worked out, right? How many governments have been seeking a more perfect society or utopia? All of them. All of them. How many have reached it? None, None of them. Uh, right? So everybody was seeking their own ideas of what a utopia looks like. Uh, and none of them ever reached it. All societies, all cultures inevitably crumble. What's the longest ruling? What is it? 
What's the longest ruling uh, nation or standing nation of rule in history? Probably That's China. still standing today? That's or ever that? standed, ever stood. So that I don't actually know the answer to this that question. That could be unknown. Uh, but uh, it might be China. I don't know. It's been thousands of years. Um, but there's been constant like cycles of you know leadership and different ideas. But it all crumbles. Like like we're under the state of right now. Like America is going to crumble. <laughs> like if we don't uh, repent and turn from our ways and become uh, a, a society devoted to God's glory and instituting God's laws. Like we are self crumbling in the making. And it's coming very, very quickly. Uh, just look like in the past decade or two, it's been at an exponential rate. Right? So, uh, those are things you can bring up. Like, if people are so good, if sin isn't that bad, why haven't we been as a society been able to create anything? Why do we keep having wars? Why, do, why are there, like, nuclear attacks? And why are there crazy people? <laughs> like, how does... Uh, why, are, why are there communists? <laughs> Uh, like who would have those ideas if we're not sinful <laughs> like like if you're a communist like you're really deceived if you believe in communism <laughs> unless you're the dictator then <laughs> I'd believe in communism too uh, if I was really sinful of course I am uh, alright number four most crit crucially why do I need to see the bad news of my own sinfulness without the insight of my own sif sinfulness I remain blind and cannot see my need for redemption, Christ, and relationship to his church. I'm at war with my internal nature and destiny and cannot live at peace with myself. Right? People who, uh, who have an ultimate purpose to glorify Christ and are waging war against their own selves outside of that. That they know, who, who knows that God exists? All, All people. It's been revealed to them. It's clearly plain. And they live with some knowledge internally and or maybe not cognitively have other, as others but all live with the eternal purpose in mind or in their being to glorify Christ all God said eternity in the hearts of all men uh, and they are at war with their own desires outside if they remain rebellious separated right if they never hear the good news if they don't know how bad it is they remain self-righteous too critical of others while executing and rationalizing my own shortcomings, right? We talked about that quite a bit. Incapable of long-term satisfaction of committed lifelong mutual service relationships. Why is that? If you continue on uh, not understanding the depths of sin and, and rationalizing, excuse-making, and blame-shifting, why does that make you incapable of long-term satisfaction in a committed lifelong mutual relationship of service to one another? Yeah, because if you're self-righteous and you're deceived and other people are the problem and you're always not the problem, then you could never be in a mutual relationship, especially if that other person thinks everyone's the problem and they're not the problem. <laughs> right? You might have some level of, you know, there's people who aren't Christians who have, uh, by, by biblical standards, good marriages. They're not glorifying to God or working towards the kingdom of God and restoring the church, but they stick together in their mutual service, which means uh, most of the time they have biblical foundations and ideas behind it and they're not glorifying God uh, and that they're doing it in dead works, right? So, but the more 
uh, people realize how deep their sin is, they can be restored to one another. That Adam and Eve can come back together after the covering, the sacrificial covering, um, and if they admit their sin and repent of it, they could bear fruit together uh, in a committed relationship. But not, not if they don't see how bad it is. And, of course, they remain lost outside of Christ. If they don't see how deep sin is, how separated they are, they remain lost in bondage to sin, separated from Christ, unrighteous, slaves to sin, uh, and they'll die that way. Right? So it's our job to go out there and proclaim the bad news. We have to tell them how bad it really is. Right? So... We'll go over real quick. Hope you guys all feel heavy weight, right? I felt a lot of respect towards Andy uh, a few weeks back when he gave us, I think I was talking to Joshua, gave us like Lord's Day 5 and Lord's Day 6, mm -hmm. which talks about the, he didn't want to leave us in the bad news, so he left us, he gave us two days in one of the Heidelberg Catechism of uh, the bad news and gave us the good news. So he was very gracious. I'm not going to be so gracious because we've already been here three <laughs> hours plus. Uh, <laughs> so go meditate, like seriously meditate on how deep sin is, understand it, be able to clearly convey to bring about conviction to other people of how deep sin goes, how bad it really is, how terrible of people they are. Amen. Amen.